Don't just do something, sit there. Is it time to panic yet? We'll talk about that and more with the Zen Master Lore Michaels next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 14th. It's show number 14 of the 2017 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We will be talking with Laura Michaels from Masters Ball and USA Today about when it's a good time to panic, about waiver wire targets, some early season sizzlers and fizzlers, a cool tune, and his studs and duds. We'll also have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at a new old closer in Philadelphia, some early batting surprises, and a sneaky potential National League batting champion in Washington. And from the American League, Ryan Bloomfield looks at injuries to Adrian Beltre and Gene Segura, the Texas closer situation, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Yankees right-handed pitching prospect Albert Abreu. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield comes back to look at the closer carousels in Oakland and Arizona. In our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Yankees outfielder Aaron Hicks and Detroit reliever Joe Jimenez. In our weekend pitcher matchups, Greg Fishwick looks at starts by Jake Arrieta, Bartolo Colon, and more. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about whether it's time to start panicking about Byron Buxton. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Scooter Jeanette has three home runs. And Jose Abreu, Jose Bautista, Jose Altuve don't have any. Jose, can you see? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Ryan Bloomfield is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's our National League report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. And it's always good to have you. Let's start in Philadelphia. Not big surprise news here, but uh, the Phillies have named Joaquin Benoit the new closer, taking over from John Mar Gomez, who is having a terrible uh, early season. Yeah, John, John Margoma just did not start well at all, and uh, so uh, uh, they've uh, they've named Benoit as the closer, and and Benoit certainly is a, you know Benoit's a guy that we've we've seen before as a closer. We know he can do the job. Uh, he's got got good historical records as a closer. Uh, Eighteen saves in two thousand. Let's see, back in two thousand thirteen, twenty four saves, uh, eleven saves in two thousand fourteen. So. He's got a, he's got a good background as a ninth inning guy and can certainly do the job. At 39 years old, things are falling off just a little bit for him. Uh, BPV has dropped below closer territory. Was at 71 last season, but uh, undoubtedly he can do the job and might hang on to it for the entire season. In fact, um, I think some folks were probably surprised that Hector Neris didn't get the role, and I think there are there are certainly reasons that did not happen. One of the things that, that I know frustrates fantasy owners, but there are these teams are, are businesses, and they uh, uh, they sometimes make business decisions. And in this case, uh, had Hector Neris uh, gotten the role as, as closer and uh, kept it all year and racked up 35 saves or so, uh, and then gone to arbitration next year, they would have had to pay him a ton of money, which they won't have to pay him uh, if he doesn't close. So uh, 
my guess is that played a major role in the decision to go with Benoit over Neris, uh, whose uh, Neris's skills are certainly far better than Benoit's, I think, at this point. I know, and that, Nick, that that sometimes irks a lot of fantasy players that they they go on the uh, HQ mantra, buy the skills, don't buy the role, and that kind of stuff. But I, and, and I understand the sentiment, but don't you think that this is just another opportunity for a smart, savvy owner to figure out in his analysis the likelihood of a player playing a particular position at a particular time. Like you said, it's a business, and a lot of these teams are now being very conscious of how they treat players, especially in their pre-arbitration, pre-free agency years. We all know about the, uh, you know, don't bring them up till late May because it will save us a year on the uh, on the service clock. But also, remember when Ken Giles came over to Houston from Philadelphia a year or two ago and, and everybody thought he'd be the closer right away, and he wasn't. And a big part of the reason was Houston realized that if he rang up a bunch of saves, when he got to arbitration, he could point to 75 career saves with the team and say, I, I want $20 million. And without all those saves, as dumb a saves, uh, stat as saves is, without them, he can go into arbitration and they can say, we'll give you nine. And the arbitrator's going to look and say, yeah, you got no saves, you know, you right. get nine. Right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, that, that we, we've got to remember this is a business. Uh, they've got to, to get to a bottom line, especially if a team doesn't have a huge market uh, that they can, that they can draw from and, and make tons and tons of money. Uh, they've got to watch that bottom line. And it certainly does make a difference. And I think we as fantasy owners, uh, have to be very aware of those kind of decisions and the likelihood of their of their taking place. Especially with a team like Philadelphia, where their management must look at the National League East, they must look at the National League in general, they look at their own roster, and they think, you know what, we're probably not going to be a contender this year. We're probably not going to be in a position where missing a, a, a save or two over the course of the year is going to make that much difference to our likelihood of making the playoffs. Now, if they surprise everybody and, and you know, keep competing well into, say, you know, the All-Star break or something like that, and they're scuffling around near the top of the division or, or in the wild card race, but they've blown two or three saves because uh, Benoit's, as you said, skills have declined somewhat, Maybe they look at that situation and go, you know, we have to bite the bullet here and we have to get a good closer in here because not only is he costing us a game or two, he may be costing us a playoff slot. Right, and that, that could become a difference, as, as, we, as you say, as we get down the road and if they, if they are winning uh, and look as though they could be in contention. The other thing to keep in mind with a team like Philadelphia is most likely uh, trade deadline, Benoit, 39-year-old guy, they're not going to want him back next year. Uh, they want to trade him at the trade deadline, and so build up his value. If he gets a bunch of saves and a contender needs a closer uh, come time for the trade deadline, they might get some, get some chips for him. So that's another reason to get him in the situation and see what he can do. And if he can do the job, they might just ship him off and get some good prospects for him uh, as we get further into the year. On the other hand, Nick, do we really think that the other general managers in baseball and the arbitrator are so unaware of the real story of what makes a pitcher useful beyond saves at this point? I mean, especially the front offices of modern baseball teams, I don't think anybody believes that saves are that important anymore. I know they bandy them around as far as uh, whether to trade a guy or you know how to treat a guy for the purposes of the fans and the media and stuff like that, but... Do you think anybody in Major League Baseball would say, geez, we need a closer? Hey, how about Joaquin Benoit? Well, you know, if you're if you're a game out of first place on uh, uh, at, at the trade deadline and uh, you've been blowing a game a week because you can't get it shut down and the bullpen is just crappy, uh, yeah, you might, you know. Uh, that's one of those things that becomes a very 
spur-of-the-moment decision and can we get through the year. And we've certainly seen it happen other places. Guys get, get uh, a ton of money and a big trade just to get through the last uh, few months of the year. I guess, but I, I don't know if Ben was that kind of guy. I was looking at his record earlier, Nick, and he's been in the big league since 2001, so this is his 17th season. He missed all of 2009 with an injury. How many saves do you think he's had in that entire 17-year span? 51 saves in his career. So, you know, that's that's a total of two seasons, and we're, we're looking at a guy that's been in the league since uh, 2002. So, you know, yeah, this is this is not a, a top-notch shutdown closer and uh, certainly is, uh, if you if you look back at the record, has been fading uh, for the last uh, four or five years. And the other thing that jumps out at me when I look at the record of a guy like Joaquin Benoit is this. He played for Texas. He played for Tampa. He played for Detroit. He played for San Diego. He had a brief stop in Seattle, a brief stop in Toronto, and now he's with, uh, well, we'll leave out Philadelphia for now, but in all of those years, only the Padres made him a closer. Everybody right. else thought he was something else. And, and so we have to ask ourselves, is everybody in baseball wrong about Joaquin Benoit and the Phillies are right about him? I, I don't know, Nick. It seems pretty suspect to me. Uh, staying in Philadelphia, uh, Clay Buchholz uh, had some bad news, like he needed more bad news. Looks like he might be out for the season. Phil Hertz covered this in playing time today. What's going on with uh, Clay Buchholz? Well, you know, it looks like, it looks as though he's got a, he does have a partial tear of his right flexor pronation mass and uh, not clear whether he'll need surgery, but he's certainly going to be out for a uh, uh, for a while. Uh, and if he does need surgery, it could be out for the season. Uh, and so there's going to be a hole suddenly in the uh, uh, in the Philly rotation. And, and they've got a bunch of candidates to fill it in. We'll just have to see where they go. It looks like uh, Zach Eflin, uh, Nick Pavetta, Mark Appel, Ben Lively, uh, the, all those names of guys that you probably haven't heard of much. Uh, at this point, we don't know what Philadelphia is going to do. Uh, or whether any of these young guys could actually settle into the role, but there's going to be an opportunity open for a uh, for a, a, a fifth starter spot in Philadelphia. Uh, it, we'll have to see what they decide, who they choose, uh, and how they they end up filling that spot. Yeah, and again, not not a lot to choose from, unfortunately, for Philadelphia. If you had to handicap this, I, I recognize some of these names. Ben Lively, though, I mean, I know I know who he is, but gosh, if that's one of your choices, I think they're in pretty rough shape. Now, Mark Appel was a former top draft pick. He's a big, tall uh, uh, strike thrower. He was a strike thrower. Who do you ha- when you handicap this race, Nick? Who do you like? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I, only uh, Eflin has major league experience. Uh, 11 games started in 2016, uh, XERA of 5.42, Adama 4.4. That doesn't sound like a guy you, you want to get into this uh, particular position. So it, it, it's tough to say. It's really tough to know what, uh, what Philadelphia would call up. I mean, our projections on, on Mark Appel are a 6.43 ERA uh, for the season, and, and certainly that's nothing to, uh, to write home about. So uh, I think they're just going to throw somebody into the spot and see if it works. If it doesn't work after two or three weeks, try the next guy. I think that's all they can do at this point. Yeah, this looks like a situation where even though there's somebody's going to pick up some playing time, uh, I think for most fantasy situations, whoever gets the job is not going to be worth an instant waiver grab. At best, you're going to have to look at it and see, well, I'll, I'll watch for a couple of starts. And in modern fantasy baseball, that usually means you lose the player because there's always somebody more desperate than you who'll take a chance. Right, yeah. Usually there's somebody who'll jump on, on, on them as they come up, and that's not something I would do, I think, with any of these guys. They simply don't have the... Uh, 
the minor league background of success that would suggest that they're going to be worth uh, rostering. Mind you, I, I would imagine that, especially in mixed leagues, it's unlikely that anybody lost Clay Buchholz from their from their own rotation. He was not very heavily drafted, certainly, and and on the basis of the last few seasons, with good reason. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, he's certainly someone I would not want anywhere near my roster. Uh, and so if someone did lose him, there's certainly someone better out there that they can pick up. This week, as the first week came to an end, our BaseballHQ.com skills columnist looked at the first week and made some observations. Of course, uh, Stephen Nickrant is our uh, batter's buyer's guide column and starting pitcher buyer's guide column. And there were a couple of names in his batting column from the National League that made me sit up and take notice. And the first one, of course, the reigning MVP, Chris Bryant, off to a very poor start. Yeah, Chris Bryant off to an awful start. You know, it's one of those things where you, you, you really have to look at these things early in the season. And remember, it's the first week. It's the first week. It's the first week. Uh, and say that over and over and over again, because uh, how many times have we uh, have we thought about, looked at a guy come come uh, September and said, well, he had a horrible April, but since then he's been killing the ball. Uh, and that that's what happens. So, yeah, Chris Bryant's off to an awful start. Uh, at the time the column was written, uh, Stephen indicated that, uh, what, Chris had uh, one hit in his first 16 at-bats. He's doing a little bit better. He's now got eight for 35, and things are show- are. are are uh, looking up. That's seven hits in the last uh, the last 17, uh, 19 at bats. So, you know these things change. Uh, Chris Bryant has yet to hit his first home run, but uh, he's got to come around. And so, you certainly do not want to uh, give up on someone early in the season. I think there's no reason to uh, to worry about uh, Chris Bryant at this point. Uh, striking out a bit uh, more than we want him to. Six strikeouts in his first sixteen at bats, but probably pressing, as Stephen said, to try to get those hits and make them fall. And so uh, I think there's no reason at this point to worry about Chris Bryant. Well, that's an interesting question. That's kind of the theme of uh, this week's podcast. Uh, when do you start to panic is the, is the question that always comes to mind. My master notes is going to be about that. I'll be talking about it in some depth a little later on with our special guest, Laura Michaels from Masters Ball. But when I look at uh, Chris Bryant, here's something that kind of raises a red flag for me a little bit. In 2015, his first full season, he struck out 36% of the time. So this is nothing new. Last year, he raised that, uh, that contact rate by 10 points. So he was only striking out a quarter of the time. And this year he's back to the, the two thirds level. So he's striking out a third of the time again. And it's not like this is one of those anomalies where the guy has consistently been a 75% contact guy. And all of a sudden, oops, after a week, he's down to 65. No big deal. This is something he has done for a full season and not that long ago. That's true. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's 25 years old and uh, certainly could fall back into old habits fairly easily. But at the same time, he undoubtedly knows what he did to correct that a year ago, and you you would hope that uh, uh, that that would happen and he would make that correction. But you're right; it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, on the other hand, if you if you as a manager, if I can convince somebody that your argument you just made me is correct, I'll I'll give you Clay Buckles for Chris Bryant. <laughs> wow, you're generous. <laughs> and uh, let me let me guess, you have some beachfront real estate in uh, Colorado. You'd like? I to do, sell I do. You want some of that? <laughs> I can sell it to you today. I'll bet you can. Of course, with global warming, it might not be too long before there is beachfront uh, property (laughs) in Colorado. Surf's up in Denver. You know, that'd be bad. Uh, Also in that same column, another name that uh, Steve Nickran took note of in the National League, Miami catcher Jacob Real Muto. 
Oh, Jacob Ramiro had the uh, the top OPS in Major League Baseball in the first week, and you know, but this is one where I think it's it's worth uh, taking a look, and and maybe this actually does mean something. Um, we're we're looking at a 26 year old hitter here, who was very good a year ago, and what this may be telling us if he's off to this kind of a hot start is that we haven't seen a ceiling yet. This is a guy who could could he hit 300, 303 a year ago. Maybe he can easily repeat that 300 batting average. Uh, along with a few extra, uh, extra, a little bit extra power, uh, and uh, you know, worth looking at as a catcher. Twenty six to hit three oh three. That's not too bad when you're catching. Uh, Eleven home runs, forty eight RBIs last season. Uh, could easily exceed those numbers, I think, this year. So, uh, if you've got Jacob Ramuto on your roster, you did a good job. Uh, he's certainly someone I think worth pursuing at this point. Uh, although after that first week, he's going to be uh, very expensive. Yeah, I don't think you could rush out and make a trade, but I, I certainly think at any point, if you have him on your roster, of course you're not thinking of moving him unless you're thinking of trying to sell high. And then the question is, is this um, is this a real kind of development or is this kind of a fluky thing that you really want to cash in on? And I agree with you when you say that this looks like it could be just a, a, a good young player making his way into his prime years and continuing a growth pattern that started way back in 2014 when he had a cup of coffee. His OPS was 611. The next year, almost 700. The next year, close to 800. I don't think he's going to finish 2017 with an 1155 OPS, and I don't think his prorated 125 runs in RBIs apiece is going to stick either. I'm curious to see when he's going to start stealing bases because that's a big, a big part of his value in the past. He had 20 combined stolen bases in the last two years which is great for a catcher. And, you know, like you said, the two home runs, I think there's a lot here to like, and all of the all of the skills indicators in a week are very, very good. They are very, very good, and they're not. The interesting thing is they're not off the charts. I mean, he had a 37% hit rate in that first week. He had a 36% hit rate a year ago. So it's not as though uh, that uh, that batting average of balls in play is, uh, is soaring off the charts. Uh, the interesting thing to note right at this point is that uh, in a tiny sample, his fly ball rate is up a bit. Uh, and that could could say uh, some good things about the power potential as the year progresses, if it stays at that kind of level. Yes, it's actually up more than a bit. He was at 30% for all of last year, 34 the year before that. This year, 41% so far, which may indicate that he's actually made a conscious effort to change his swing path and generate a little bit more of the power. Now, we should point out, Nick... When you trade ground balls for fly balls, you tend to give up some batting average because uh, a softly or medium hit ground ball can always sneak through the infield. But it's very rare for a medium hit fly ball, a can of corn as we call it, to find its way between two major league outfielders. Right, very definitely. So that that could be, uh, if he indeed has made a conscious effort to try to generate some more power, uh, you're right. There, there could be eventually a, a little bit lower batting average as a price to pay for that. Finally, Nick, uh, one of the fun columns at BaseballHQ.com uh, uh, during the year is the speculator column where our columnists Jock Thompson, uh, Ray Murphy, and uh, Brent Hershey kind of look at the 20% possibility rather than the 80% we usually look at. And Ray recently had a column where he was speculating on some players who might just win the big awards or lead the big categories. And one of the names that jumped out at me, and this is because I thought he was a, a really good candidate myself in this area, Adam Eaton of Washington is Ray's pick as a speculative pick to win the batting title. Yeah, you know, I, I love this column every year. It's one that I that I look forward to and look to see if any of the guys in there are guys I could get on my roster fairly easily because, uh, you know, that... that uh, uh, the fact that these, this has jumped out to Ray and looks like somebody who could do something makes me take a second look. And uh, you know, Adam Eaton is a, is a very interesting ball player at this point. 
if you look at uh, uh, at what's happened early in the season with Adam Eaton, uh, he, he is playing very, very well. I mean, Washington gave up a ton to get him, and so far he's uh, justifying his uh, his situation. Eaton, uh, at, at this point, is, is playing very well. I mean, he's, he's hitting the ball well and doing the kinds of things that uh, that the Nationals hoped he would do coming over. 11 hits and 33 at-bats, uh, one home run, five, uh, five ribbies, uh, two stolen bases. So hitting 333 uh, with a little bit of power and stealing some bases and uh, looks to me to be in very good shape. And certainly a, a, the possibility that he could sustain a level of, of a batting average that's in, in that range. The thing that, that Ray points out that I find really interesting is the lineup around him. Uh, he's hitting at the top of the Nationals lineup. Uh, he's got he's got good guys behind him and in front of him, Trey Turner, Bryce Harper, Daniel Murphy. So a lot of chances to hit with runners in, uh, in scoring position, a lot of chances to hit with protection behind him, uh, a lot of chances to hit with uh, perhaps a guy on a guy on base. Uh, so I, I like the place that uh, that Adam Eaton is in. Uh, Ray says he might be in the best lineup spot in baseball, and I think that's true. Well, that lineup point you make, Nick, is a good one. I was a little worried about it a week or so ago. There were some rumors floating around that Dusty Baker was thinking about breaking up that all-left-handed top of the order they had in Washington and maybe putting Trey Turner at the top and pushing Eaton down into the seventh or eighth spot in the lineup, which would have really had a significant impact on one area. We know that runs scored is kind of the red-headed stepchild of 5x5 five five fantasy baseball. Nobody pays enough attention to it. At the top of that order, he, we project him for more than 100 runs scored for this season. He's already got nine. And the flip side of that is staying at the top of the order, Nick, I wonder if it's going to affect his stolen base count. We're projecting around 20. But when you're at the top of an order full of really good hitters, sometimes the manager says, look, just don't run. We don't want to get, get ourselves run out of an inning. And so he might be limited to sort of stealing with uh, two out and two strikes on one of those big bats. Well, you know, that's possible. It could be that in the position he's in in the order or, or if Trey Turner uh, hits ahead of him, which once he's back in the lineup, uh, that could make a difference. And Trey Turner's on base. And so he gets on base too and doesn't get a chance to run. There are all, there are all those possibilities and could limit the stolen base potential. Uh, a bit, but certainly the run scored is, is important given where he is. And I think Eaton's in a far better position, uh, at the top of the lineup, certainly than he would be, than he would be further down. Uh, the other thing to remember about Eaton, I, you know, it's, it's, you, you look at him and you think this guy's been around a while, right? Well, he's been around. This is his, this will be his fifth season. He's 28 years old. He should be coming into his prime physically. Uh, this is a guy who really could, uh, if he hasn't broken out already and maybe that 14 home runs at 14, uh, stolen bases that are 284 BA a year ago is something you say, yeah, he already broke out. Well, there, there's more potential there for Adam Eaton. So uh, I really like the position he's in. Uh, yeah, he could win the, win the batting title and certainly could well exceed the uh, uh, the 20 dollar uh, value that he put up uh, a year ago. Oh, he certainly could. He was in the mid-20s, around $25 in 2015, with uh, 14 home runs that year and 18 stolen bases, and then he also had that 300 ba uh, 287 batting average that year. And that's a, a final point I think that's really interesting about Adam Eaton. Not only has he got five full years in the big leagues, or parts of five full years, I guess 2013 was a little short, but in the last three years in particular, 2014 through 2016, batting average 284 or higher, including a 300 season. His uh, run scored in the last couple of years right around 100, his stolen bases 18 and 14. This is not a case of a, of a ball player doing something, as you said, for the first time this year. This is just a continuation of a steady pattern of excellence. 
Yes, very definitely. I, I, you know, I think I'm going to go out on a limb. OPS of 792 uh, two years ago, OPS of 790 last year. I think he's going to break 800 this year with his OPS. All right. I, I guess you should get off to Vegas and get that down before it's too late. There we go. <laughs> All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the National League. Uh, you're going to be off next week, but we'll talk to you in two weeks' time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn it over to the American League. Jock Thompson is away this week, and once again filling in for Jock is BaseballHQ.com analyst and Baseball HQ Radio commentator Ryan Bloomfield. Ryan, welcome back to the show, and thanks again for pinch hitting. Absolutely. I like, I like when Jock takes these vacations. I get to, to fill in for him. Well, you're a lucky man because he takes a lot of vacations. <laughs> 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 let's start let's start off uh, with Texas uh, situation in the injury department Adrian Beltre has a grade one calf strain Rod Truesdell covered this in playing time today a couple of days ago Matt Cederholm looked at it in his injury column the big hurt which is an excellent name for a baseball injury column so first of all what's the story with the Beltre injury yeah the Beltre injury doesn't doesn't sound too good he's kind of been battling this calf for for spring training throughout spring training and and it's it's snowballed into this um, you mentioned Matt's new injury analysis column which which I think is a great addition to the site uh, and a great name like like you said the big hurt uh, Matt said you know on on average it takes about three to four weeks recovery time for a for a grade one calf strain with with Beltre's age obviously that might be on the higher end so just kind of speculating at this point, but uh, probably won't see Beltre back until around mid-May if, you know, there are no other setbacks. So um, he's going to be out for a little while. We know that he's going to miss some time, could be significant time, uh, as you said, especially given his advanced age. So while he's out, who gets the playing time? I I've seen Joey Gallo in the lineup pretty regularly. Yeah, it's going to be Joey Gallo. So, so Rod kind of ran through the, uh, the situation in Texas in his playing time today column, as, as you mentioned, and, and Gallo's going to be the guy. So he's, he, we, a lot of us know the story of, of Joey Gallo so far, a lot more to be written. Uh, Gallo's shown a little bit better pitch selection this season through a small sample, April 11. He's got a 15% walk rate. But, but Gallo strikes out a ton, uh, 44% career contact rate in the big leagues. That is, that is straight awful. Um, and this season, not, not too much better in that small sample, 57% contact rate with, uh, with the obvious low batting average to, to follow that. He's hitting 174 with a 196 expected batting average. Um, the, the obvious draw with Gallo is the huge power, the, the Stantonian power. He's got a 200 power index, which is one of our base, uh, power skills. That means he's, um, he's, he's making, he's, his raw power is twice as much as, uh, the, the regular, the average regular in the big leagues. And that, that's rare, uh, to see. Um, so, so that's the obvious, uh, draw with Gallo. He has been jerked around a lot by Texas so far early in his career. He's got an inconsistent playing time going up and down, uh, between the majors and the big leagues, only 25 at bats last season. So this will be Gallo's first prolonged shot in a while. And he's still just 23. So, so lots of time and, and hope for Gallo. Um, Right now, not too high on him in the short term. He's a three true outcomes guy. His his value depends in part on your league format, a little bit better in, in on-base leagues. And in batting average leagues, you better plan for that batting average hole because it, it does not look good with the swing and miss. 
You know, he's he's flashed a, a pretty good walk rate at the major leagues and in the minors throughout his career at 12%, 17%, 17 again this year, uh, 17 last year. Admittedly, these are in very short samples, but the same is true in the minors. He seems to have a pretty good eye at the plate, and uh, Baseball HQ research in the past, Ryan, has indicated that uh, a really solid walk rate augurs well for power outcomes, not so much for batting average, but a guy who can uh, zero in on what he wants at the plate is going to have pretty good power. Of course, the flip side is he's also going to take a lot of strikes, and he's also going to swing and miss a lot when when the strike is not to his liking. Now, you mentioned that he could be a little better in on-base percentage leagues. His projected baseball HQ value in that category is 343, which is actually quite a bit ahead of the league average. I think that's fairly promising if your league happens to be in that format. Yeah, absolutely. Gallo's very much league format dependent. Like you said, the, the walk rate's great for his plate patience and, and his power. Does, doesn't really affect his batting average, but it, it if he gets on base, he's also going to stay in the lineup, uh, which is kind of step one, too. So, um, so yeah, certainly in OBP leagues, he's, uh, he's a guy to, to target. What about his uh, fielding? I, I know the knock on him in the past has been he's a little bit short of Adrian Beltre in the glove department. <laughs> That's true, um, and, and it the the thing is though that uh, that Texas does seem committed to giving him a shot, so I, I think they're willing to eat some of that defensive risk. Uh, there's not really anything behind uh, Gallo on the roster. It, I kind of looked through the BaseballHQ.com depth charts and saw saw Will M- Middlebrooks uh, name from the past there. So um, yeah, despite the 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 lack of uh, of leather, um, Gallo's still going to get that shot. So we'll see. Before we go on to other players and other situations, Ryan, don't you think that this Joey Gallo situation is kind of illustrative of a, of an issue that we face as fantasy baseball players engaging prospects? You have a guy like Gallo, as you said, he's bounced around. Minnesota is infamous for bouncing its prospects up and down, and some people say messing with their heads a bit because they're afraid to make a mistake, which causes them to make mistakes. Uh, the Dealing with these young prospects, especially when they get these opportunities, it's really riding a roller coaster, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And and with these high profile prospects, everybody's tracking every pitch for these for these youngsters and and they're facing major league uh, pitching for, you know, the first or second time. It's very hard. And even for the most elite prospects, their growth is not linear. So uh, we see all the time. um where where these where these high profile guys struggle initially go back down to the minors, um, you know continue to develop and and eventually um, are productive fantasy players later on. So um, you know with 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 Gallag and Byron Buxton's a great great example. Jose Barrios in Minnesota, uh, PD you mentioned Minnesota. So. Um, don't give up on these guys right away. Um, in Gallo's case, I'm still very concerned about the contact rate. That is lower than, you know, I've, I've seen anywhere, but, uh, but, but certainly too early to just totally write him off. Definitely. It is, especially as you said before, he's only 23 years old. So he's, uh, far short of his physical prime and, and he's going to work his way into it. And baseballhq.com research has indicated that when you should be looking at at prospects like this, unlike the Alex Bregmans of the world who come in and do well right out of the gate, but guys who struggle a little bit but have the really big potential, the time to be looking at them is in the season after they reach 800 plate appearances. And depending on how long mm-hmm. Joey Gallo plays this year, that could mean that uh, that 
Next year might be the time to look at him rather than this year. He's at 188 for his three years so far. He's got about a little uh, less than 600 to go, a little more than 600 to go, rather. And if he might not even be this year, it might be two years from now, but uh, look for that 800 plate appearance threshold. Yeah, or, or even longer. Look at Alex Gordon, who was the hottest prospect out there and took him five, six years to be uh, productive, but eventually did. Staying in Texas, uh, be- beside the third base situation, they've got a real uh, rumble in the jungle going in the closer situation. Jock Thompson covered this in playing time tomorrow, earlier this week. Uh, what's go- First of all, what's going on in the closer situation there? There's not a lot good going on right now. Uh, Sam Dyson entered the season. He's the incumbent closer in, in Texas, and he's given up 11 runs in his first four outings. Um, Dyson is a sinker baller. He's got an excellent ground ball rate, but he's left that sinker up in the zone early in uh, in 2017 from the from the outings that I've seen, and uh, that obviously has not boded well for uh, Dyson. He 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 struggles to miss bats anyway. Um, low swinging strike rate, 7.0 uh, strikeouts per nine in 2016. So so we 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 pegged him with a downside of 15 saves in the baseball forecaster. weren't too impressed with Dyson's peripherals, and I think Dyson's going to be lucky to, to to even sniff 15 saves this year. I think Texas is uh, is making a change at the back end of their bullpen it's it's a bad situation when a sinker baller's fastball doesn't sink now the problem that i look at when i see this texas closer situation is i don't see a lot of really super enticing options yeah behind behind ison and, and texas's pen it is kind of a cluster um i'll, I'll run through kind of the three main guys uh, first off is matt bush who was who was a, a pretty hyped guy actually entering 2017 drafts um, bush's uh kind of story is has been well documented he was out of baseball a couple of years came back last season and uh and and threw a 248 era with with some pretty good skills a 4.4 strikeout to walk rate 97 mile an hour uh fastball um so he's got the skills problem is with matt bush he's got a sprained ac joint in his shoulder and he's currently getting injections on his pitching shoulder and and that's obviously a, a bad uh sign for any kind of short-term value bush you know has the highest upside of any reliever in texas's bullpen in my opinion but it's hard to plop down if if you're looking for um for an early closer, it's hard to plop down those fab dollars on a guy with a bulky shoulder. So uh, Bush definitely has a lot of risk despite the skills upside. I think short-term, Texas is more apt to go uh, with Jeremy Jeffress. Uh, Jeffress is a similar profile to Dyson, generates lots of ground balls, does miss a few more bats than, than Sam Dyson, so a little more upside there, um, and has the, you know, Jeffress has the quote-unquote closer experience. He, he, he started out 2016 as Milwaukee's closer. Um, so, so he would be my guy to hedge uh, short-term. Jeffress has given up a run in three of his first six outings with, with Texas. He's, he's certainly not an elite uh, closer option, in, in my opinion, but I think that Jeffress can get the job done, and most importantly, he is healthy. So um, he'd be my pick. One last name to just kind of throw out here in Texas's bullpen is, is Kaoni Kayla, um, who has electric stuff, um, excellent skills, you know, arguably better than Matt Bush, who we t- just talked about. Uh, but Kayla has some control problems, 4.5 walks per nine 55 percent strike or uh, first pitch strike rate 
not very good. But the biggest problem with Kayla is, is apparently a problem between the ears. Uh, Kayla was demoted to AAA due to his actions in a, in a B uh, spring training game, kind of got into it with his teammates in the middle of a game. And apparently this isn't the first time. So uh, Kayla's uh, punishment is to start the season in, in the minor leagues. Keep an eye if he, if he can kind of shape up his, his attitude and get back with the big leagues. He's a, he's a speculative play later on in the season. But, uh, but yeah, Jeffers, I, I would say, is the guy to, to target early on. Boy, you know, if, if you have a reserve slot open and you can afford to pick up Kayona Kayla now, when the, probably the bid price will be a dollar or two, and uh, in the American League tout that I play in, you can actually make $0 bids, and I'm really considering it hard because even though the guy seems to have some uh, temper control issues, as you mentioned, I wonder if spending two or three weeks or a month down in uh, Round Rock or wherever he is in the minor leagues, sleeping on some lumpy small town mattresses and riding the bus, <laughs> you know, it, m- it must serve as something of an incentive to get your head straightened around because you like flying, you like staying in first class hotels, you like having a room to yourself, you like $160 meal money instead of 40 and there's a lot of incentives that Texas seems to be dangling in front of Keona Kayla. And I think given the weaknesses of Jeffress and the health problems with uh, Matt Bush, Keona Kayla could find himself getting some saves and sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Certainly on the field, he's got the skills to do it. He's got the, got the ground ball tilt, got the swing and miss. Um, but yeah, hopefully this serves as a wake-up call for Kayla and, and he can kind of turn things around. So we'll see how that shapes out, but uh, certainly worth monitoring, definitely. And one other comment I have, uh, when I was talking earlier with Nick about Joaquin Benoit taking over as the closer in Philadelphia, when I look at his past record, I see a lot of different organizations, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Toronto, um, Mm -hmm. now Texas. Nobody has ever handed him the ball to be a closer except uh, the one year in 2016 where he got the ball in Milwaukee quite a bit, and that was partly because they just didn't have that many other options. A lot of teams don't like Jeremy Jeffers as their closer, which makes me suspicious that maybe he just isn't a closer. Yeah, I I, I fully agree. Um, you know, he he's got the like I said, kind of the um, the decent skills at ground ball rate, but uh, doesn't have that that dominant closer profile. And like you said, you've, you've bounced around those organizations. Um, there's probably something there that more than you know one organization has seen and decided to move on. I'm also a little worried that uh, up till 2015, he was racking up strikeouts around nine, uh, one year, 10 strikeouts per inning. And all of a sudden this last couple of years, it's been under seven. I wonder if the arm is wearing out or there's some like latent injury there. I don't know. A lot, a lot to worry about with Jeremy Jeffers. I'll say that. Uh, Going over to Seattle, another DL story. Shortstop Gene Segura has a strained right hamstring. What's going on with the hamstrings uh, lately? Uh, Rod Truesdell covered this in playing time today. What's the story with this injury? Yeah, I've been kind of following that somewhat closely up here in the, in the Northwest. The, the hamstrings injury does not seem serious. Uh, manager, uh, Seattle manager, uh, Scott Survey said if it wasn't for the 10 day DL, um, Segura probably would be one of those day to day types. So it sounds like Segura is going to be back when eligible. Um, Seattle called up utility man Michael Freeman, who in a pretty cool moment hit his first career major league homer on, on April 12th. But, uh, but, but Taylor Motter is really the guy who's gonna, 
get the starts at shortstop um, in Segura's absence. Uh, Motter also hit a home run in that April 12th game off Houston's Mike Mike Fires. A lot of a lot of Seattle hitters did that night. Uh, Motter's mostly known for his glove and his versatility, though, so not too much fantasy value. Our scouting report on Motter um, has a long swing, and we saw that with a with a 234 batting average in Triple A Durham um, in Tampa's organization last season. Uh, Motter has average power, hit 13 bombs last year with 17 doubles, and that, and that's kind of what I've seen from from Motter so far in limited action with with Seattle this year some pop but uh, not too much batting average or or, um, or or plate skills there we're projecting a 234 on base percentage for modder a 545 OPS gave him a a 6b prospect rating when he was called up to you know, on the opening day roster not very exciting there so um, not really fantasy relevant modders more known for his epic spring training hair flip He's got the the Cindergard golden locks, and that that made some waves in spring training when he stole a base and flipped his hair. But uh, but that's about it for Modder. And at least in most fantasy leagues, uh, hair flipping not a category, so it's not that no. much help. <laughs> no. Uh, this ten day DL. Now you mentioned this is interesting. Uh, the Seattle organization put him on the 10-day DL because there is a 10-day DL, and they said it had it been 15, they probably just sit him on the bench and, and just let him get better on his own. How do you think this is going to affect fantasy baseball in the future with this short-term DL? It looks to me like a lot more guys are going to be on it when they get these kind of situations, especially pitchers, because they have to miss a start anyways. You might as well get somebody on your roster to take their spot even for, even for 10 days. Yeah, it certainly seems like we're seeing a lot more of these 10-day DL stints, at least early on. Um, and, and there's been a lot of speculation, you know, when the, when the rule change came into effect this past offseason. Our Jock Thompson, um, wrote up in the offseason, in his offseason keepers column, kind of the impacts of the 10-day DL. And, and you're right, PD. I think the biggest impact with this 10-day DL, um, is the kind of day-to-day guys. So we've seen this not only with Segura, but also with Trey Turner in, in Washington. Um, Dusty Baker basically said the same thing. Turner's day-to-day, but, uh, but they decided to put him on the 10 day DL, free up that roster spot and make sure early in the season that these folks are recovered. So, um, and obviously with pitchers, right? 10 day DL, like you said, you're only missing one start. So I, I think we're going to see a lot of that. Fantasy impacts is actually pretty big, um, with the 10 day DL. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if, if, if fantasy leagues adjust to that with some more DL spots. Um, because it certainly looks like the trend early on is organizations are using that 10-day DL to kind of shelve guys and create roster spots for those day-to-day injuries. I think it's going to be worth looking at, too, how to manage your fab, because you should anticipate if you lose a starter to the 10-day 10 10-day 10 DL, he was going to miss a start anyway, and before you had to just leave him on your active roster or uh, take up a reserve slot. Now, if your league allows uh, DL moves, you can slap that guy down there for 10 days, grab a middle reliever to get some strikeouts and some good innings for the decimals. I think we all need to be really reconsidering how we manage our whole fab system, free agent system, all those kind of things to take advantage of what looks like a a fairly significant change in how things are done. Uh, Speaking of changes, Lonnie Chisenhall was out from the start of the year. He returned to the Cleveland lineup. Tom Kephart covered this in playing time today. Uh, First of all, who figures to lose playing time now that Chisenhall is back in the lineup? Yeah, so Chisholm Hall should slide in to, to center field and be the, the, um, on the right side of a platoon and center. 
Tom updated this in his in his Friday playing time today. Uh, somewhat of a surprising move. Cleveland demoted Tyler Naquin uh, to AAA Columbus to make room for Chisholm Hall, and Abraham Almonte will slide over to uh, to left field in a platoon. Um, so it looks like Chisholm Hall is going to get the majority of the at bats in center. Almonte and left, and Naquin, uh, who was a, a surprising kind of sleeper candidate, is now um, riding that minor league bus in Columbus. And sleeping on those lumpy mattresses. So yeah. uh, you mentioned Chisholm Hall's on the right side of the platoon. Sometimes that's a good thing. People complain, oh, now he's going to miss all those at-bats, but if he can't hit the same side pitching anyway, uh, oh, it's not that bad of a thing. What's the outlook for Chisholm Hall? Yeah, I fully agree with that platoon situation. Um, it sounds bad because you're not getting everyday playing time, but you don't want those bad numbers um, in a bad platoon matchup. So outlook for Chisholm Hall you know, isn't half bad. Uh, Chisholm Hall hit 286 last season thanks to an 82% contact rate, which is uh, pretty well above average in today's strikeout-friendly environment. And that batting average was you know, somewhat backed up by a 260 expected batting average. Um, the power for Chisinau hasn't quite developed like we expected it to when he was coming up in the minors. Uh, Chisinau has a sub-80 expected power index, which is uh, well below league average. That looks at hard-hit line drives and fly balls. Um, and and Chisenhall, yeah, has been below 80 each of the last two seasons, which is not good. And the shoulder strain, which kept him out to start the season, could sap that power even more. So I, I think Chisenhall is is... AL only relevant right now, given his his prospect pedigree. Still just 28. He did put up a, a decent season in, in 2014. So I think he's worth a stab. I think Chisnall's worth a stab in the AL only leagues. Mixed league owners probably would stay away due to the lack of pop and uh, and that, that, that lack of everyday playing time. Yeah, he's only had double-digit home runs a couple of times, 2013 and 14. He snuck in with 11 and 13 home runs. Uh, where I think there might be some hidden value with Chisholm Hall is Cleveland's a running team. And over the last three years, uh, starting in 2014, he had three stolen bases, then four, then six last year. Is there any chance Chisholm Hall could sneak up to 10 stolen bases? Um, if everything breaks right, he could he could get up to 10. Uh, yeah, stole six last year. He's got league average uh, speed, according to our speed score. And if uh, if Cleveland if Cleveland runs him, he, he could certainly... Uh, flirt with 10 steals, but I, I wouldn't count on it. I'd say maybe just a handful. And finally, let's go to Houston. The stars are definitely not shining. Jock Thompson covered this in playing time tomorrow in his American League West coverage. Uh, let's start with Yulieski Gurriel. Uh, he's off to a very slow start, but he's got the big salary. Yeah, Gurriel, the, the, the Cuban import is eight for his first 32, just one extra base hit so far. He has struggled. Uh, PD, you mentioned the, 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 the contract. Houston's plunked $44 million into Guriel through 2020. So that, uh, <laughs> that gives him somewhat of a, of a longer leash. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not too high on Guriel long term. Um, he makes a lot of contact, almost never strikes out. He's got a career 90% contact rate in 150 major league at bats, which is nice, but it's weak contact, a, a 69% power index in 2016 three home runs in, in those 150 at-bats. So I think we're looking at an empty batting average at best for, for Gurriel. And there's not, you know, you know, he's new to the majors, but, but Gurriel's 32 years old. So I, I don't see a whole lot of projection left um, with Gurriel. I think a reasonable comp might be like a Yunel Escobar, someone who could hit for a high batting average, but, uh, but not provide much in the way of counting stats. 
if Guriel falters, uh, which seems likely, I agree with you. Jock mentions A.J. Reed as the obvious replacement. Of course, Reed has been something of a disappointment for fantasy owners in his uh, short major league career. What's the prognosis? Should he get called up and called upon again? Yeah, Jock, Jock definitely mentioned A.J. Reed's the obvious replacement if, if Guriel uh, falters. He did have a great spring, Reed uh, did, and, and in, in limited action this this spring, but he's going to start in AAA. Houston wanted to get AJ Reed regular at bats as opposed to having him sit on the bench in the majors. Um, Reed started out eight for his first twenty three in in Fresno with a home run. Um, he got a shot with Houston in twenty sixteen, but struggled. Uh, Reed hit one sixty four, uh, which was a, a batting average sunk by a sixty one percent contact rate. But but remember, and we 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 talked about this with with Joey Gallo just a few minutes ago. Uh, Reed has that prospect pedigree, and we can't just dismiss him based on a bad you know quarter season in in twenty sixteen. Reed was our number fifty one prospect on the HQ one hundred just last year. He's got big time power potential. Uh, similar similar to Gallo. So at the very least, I, I would expect actually A.J. Reed, if, if Guriel continues to struggle, at the very least, um, I could see a platoon at, at first base. A.J. Reed struggles versus left-handed pitching, so I could see um, Reed up in Houston to face righties with Guriel staying in against left-handed pitching. I don't see Houston completely going away from Guriel given that contract, but I could see a platoon at first. And again, Reed would be on the good side of the platoon, so that's uh, something to recommend him. What about some of the other Houston hitters off to slow starts? Altuve, Bregman, Josh Reddick, all of these guys seem to be scuffling. Yeah, I've caught a lot of Houston. Um, they've played Seattle at seven of the first 10 games so far this season, and, and their hitters have struggled. Jose Altuve started out awful, hit, hit below 200 with a lot of strikeouts in his first week, but he's hitting up, heating up already. He's got five hits in two games, um, through uh, Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. Alex Bregman's another guy who started, uh, slow, nine for his first 37, but, uh, but these guys are, these guys are going to be fine. I, I think to, to analyze their early season, uh, slow starts is, is, is not the way to go. I, I think they're going to rebound and just be fine. Ditto for even like Josh Reddick. You know what you're getting with, with Reddick, who, who has started slow, um, should be fine against right-handed pitching. So, um, the struggles will go, will go away. I think fortunately for Houston. They've had Marwin Gonzalez as, as a versatility play, utility guy, and he's filled the void early on uh, for the Astros, 5 for 18 with three home runs, but can't really expect that that to hold over the long term. So uh, don't panic if you are uh, a, a fantasy owner of, of Houston's hitters. All right, Ryan, I appreciate you taking the time and filling in for Jock again this week. We'll uh, be interested in your playing time commentary a little later in the show. What are you talking about? Yeah, so I'm gonna stay with with closers. I guess I'm a I'm a sucker for punishment. Looking at all these closer situations, we talked about Texas's uh, situation just now, but I'll, we'll look at uh, Oakland's uh, closer situation and Fernando Rodney out in Arizona. So Fernando Rodney, boy, oh boy! <laughs> Every time there's a closer situation, they roll back the stone in front of the crypt and uh, resurrect somebody from a million years ago. It seems <laughs> twenty years from now, we'll be talking about Fernando Rodney's risk as a closer in you know, Montreal. <laughs> Between ages 50 and 60, he slowed down some, but now that he's collecting uh, social security, he seems to be uh, getting his head on straight. Yeah, I know it's it's very weird. I, I still think, even though, and this is something Nick and I talked about just a moment ago, 
teams seem to be getting smarter about these bullpen issues. We're starting to see more managers talking about mixing and matching and putting the right guy in the right situation and that kind of stuff. But boy, it sure seems a lot of people still get hung up on that. He's got a lot of saves thing. And, and absolutely. And, and kind of going off on a little side, but what, but watch Cincinnati's usage early this season. They are, I love what they're doing with their bullpen. They've got four great arms in the pen and they are not sticking with those conventional, uh, roles. So, um, just kind of a FYI there. Love what Brian Price is doing there. Yeah. And sometimes it takes a team that's going to probably struggle, probably not going to be too successful. That's a place where a manager can feel free to experiment because I'm old enough that I remember the first time Boston tried it and they just didn't have the right people and the bullpen by committee imploded and everybody started yelling in the newspapers and on the talk radio and the team quickly retreated and went back to this save-centric bullpen model and you know, because they expected to win and they weren't winning, it becomes a problem. Cincinnati doesn't expect to win. So while they make this maybe work, it could, uh, could lead to good things. Uh, as I said, Ryan, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot, PD. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he has our playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. When we come back, it's our feature guest interview, the Zen Master of Fantasy Baseball. It's Lore Michaels next on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy, and I'd like to take a minute to explain why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to set you up for success in your drafts with great information across all the major fantasy formats. Get ready for your draft or auction now with news analysis, prospect coverage, and player performance validation. And use our valuation tools and cheat sheets so you don't just get ready. You feel ready and confident that you'll dominate your competition at the draft table. Here's PD with a look at just a little of what's on BaseballHQ.com right now. In playing time today, Lonnie Chisenhall rejoins the Cleveland lineup. Giovanni Soto goes to the DL. The Mets make some minor roster adjustments and a whole lot more. In the speculator column, as we discussed with Nick earlier in NL News, Ray Murphy looks at long shots for the major awards and category leaders. And in the Big Hurt Injury Analysis column, which we talked about with Ryan in the American League News, Matt Cedarholm looks at Trey Turner, David Price, Gary Sanchez, and many more. And that's just some of the great content at BaseballHQ.com. We're adding 30 articles every week to help keep you on top of your game. If you want to invest in your fantasy baseball success, we have a couple of options for you. The full year subscription to Baseball HQ is currently $75, which includes all the articles and tools, plus membership in our HQ forums, the message boards where serious fantasy baseball players like you gather to exchange ideas and tips. We also have a draft prep subscription option with all the same privileges through April 30th for just $39. And if you enter the promo code HQRADIO at checkout, we'll knock a five spot off the price just to thank you for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Come join us at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It's BaseballHQ.com. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Lore Michaels from Masters Ball and USA Today. Lore, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always so much fun to to talk with you and uh, go over baseball, music, and life stuff. 
just like walking the streets of New York. I was just going to say, yeah, when people are following along behind and eavesdropping because it's uh, they find it uh, an interesting conversation. Let's hope we can provide that for our listeners today. Uh, let's start off talking about uh, panic time, I'll call it. We'll be talking in a few minutes about some particular players who are off to weird or anomalous starts in one way or another. But first, I'd like to know about how to deal with weird player starts in general lore. How do you usually deal with analyzing a very hot or very cold start by a player? Uh, I try not to. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to look at. I, I think M- Miggy hit his first homer yesterday, but it's very difficult to look at Mickey with, Miggy with 48 bats and three hits. Um, Trevor Story, I, I mean, there's, uh, if you look at the bottom of the numbers, uh, uh, the, the hitters' numbers, there's, it, it, I, I think everybody probably has a couple of players like that that are just on the bottom doing nothing, batting 108. And I, I think the thing you have to do is just try to be patient, especially, especially if you drafted a player to produce. You have to give them a chance to produce. It, it's cold or colder this time of year. It takes hitters a little longer to get into a groove with the warm weather. Bats usually heat up, and we're almost, we'll be in May in a couple of weeks, and weather will start to get warm. So I, I think for the most part, you just have to try to be patient the, the first month. Uh, it's very difficult to do, but, but, but just let the, if, you, if you pay premium for Miguel Cabrera, then you have to let Miguel Cabrera play. Uh, otherwise, you'll never realize the profit that you any aspect of the profit that you invested in him. Laura, to what extent does the player's experience, or more accurately, lack of experience, affect your calculations or your considerations how you're going to handle an anomalous first ten games or fifteen games or whatever it is? Oh, uh, that that actually is a good question, and that factors in a lot. Uh, I I tend to, for example, shy away from guys like. Uh, uh, Trey Turner, to, uh, like 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 Trevor Story, um, younger guys who are coming off of uh, a very very solid first performance, first first uh, splash in the majors, that are going into their second year. I I tend to find that they're overvalued, and that a lot more often corrections occur for those players, and and they you know after after 350 400 at bats. Uh, coming into a new season, every team has a book on the guy now, and they know how to pitch him. They're they're used to seeing him, and, and it's a whole different, uh, shall we say, ball game. <laughs> and I I think there's almost always more more. There's a lot more uh, instances of guys like Gordon Beckham who come out hot that first 300 at bats, and then have difficulty adjusting afterwards than the other way around. I I, I think the only the only guy I can think of this year coming off of a hot year rookie season last year that I really feel confident really is a high pick is it would be Corey Seager. Um, but most of the rest of them I, I, I would just shy away from. If you have two or three years' worth of solid statistical output, then that, that's what tells me to be more patient. So, and, and I usually don't draft guys like Trevor Story come, going into their second year because they go for more than I'm willing to pay. Laura, what about the difference between hitters and pitchers? Of course, you mentioned that Miguel Cabrera is off to a slow start. You kind of have to expect he's going to recover. Uh, obviously, he's a tremendous talent. Uh, I have on my own Tout Wars roster, I have uh, a guy like um, uh, Edwin Encarnacion. He's under 300 for an on-base percentage. He's got years of 350, 360 on-base percentage. I have to bet that there's a recovery coming. But 
How about pitchers? When you get into the pitching, then all of a sudden you have way wider error bars. There's way more variability in the performance at the best of times. And then how does that affect your willingness to, to let a guy ride versus sitting him down or dropping him because the variability is so wide that maybe it means he's got a big upswing coming or maybe it means there's even further to fall? Um, again, I think experience does factor in a little bit. It's a little different for pitchers, especially the first month of the year. For example, there's a lot of uh, there's a handful of rookie pitchers who have done very very well thus far. Um, um, Freeland, Senzatella, uh, Gerald Cotton have all or Andrew Triggs have all turned in nice performances and all still are basically rookie pitchers. And, and by the same token, that this year uh, ball clubs might have a book on, on the likes of Trey Turner, nobody really has a book on any of those pitchers just yet. So I think the combination of pitchers having an advantage the first month of the season and that being a newer arm on the scene kind of can fall uh, in the in the direction of pitchers like that, I uh, also have noticed over the years guys like Jay Happ or Mark Burley, uh, Jeremy Hellickson. Those junk ballers tend to do well their first few starts in the season again, just because hitters are trying to get their timing down, and uh, a junk baller can definitely mess with a hitter and is timing better than a fastball pitcher can or a, a hard thrower for the most part. But I, I think I think for the most part with pitchers like that, you could use the basic major league team as kind of a cue too. If if if, if somebody's really struggling, then uh, like Raul Alcantara on the A's is a good example. He really struggled his first start, so the team immediately plugged Jesse Hahn in for the next start. I think those for one, those are good indicators. But you have to again try to be a little bit patient. Uh, and and the, the other thing with pitchers, fortunately, is there's a lot of them. Um, if you have a pitcher you, you, who's really struggling that you want to dump, uh, coming up with a relief pitcher out of the free agent pool and just sort of stopping the free fall of the pitcher and monitoring them. But, but pitchers are a, a, a position I, I don't mind streaming out of, out of the free agent pool. If I can't stream them in my roster, I'll move them around. Um, but, but again, your, your high-end pitchers, your guys that you really pay for, you have to give them a chance uh, to, to to show what they can do. They'll 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 more like Miggy more times than not. They'll deliver in the long run. I think the point you make about the organization's response to uh, poor performance is illustrative, and I. At the same time, I kind of wonder because there are some organizations that seem to handle it really poorly in, as a general rule. And I'm thinking up until when the front office changed in Minnesota, they were pretty notorious for giving up on their prospects really quickly and sending them down and calling them up and sending them down and calling them up. And after a while, you wonder if the kid had his head on straight because he was bouncing around like a yo-yo, whereas the more enlightened clubs are were a little more fastidious about making sure that people are being moved around intelligently. So uh, I think that's something to consider. But in general, Lore, how far into the season do we have to be before these anomalous starts become more real to you and therefore more bettable or more actionable? I, I, I try to wait the month of April, the first month, give everybody a chance. Um, and, and what you're saying is right, too. The, for example, I, I will trust a Dodger pitcher coming up more than a lot, or the Royals, more than a lot of other teams, because traditionally the Dodgers and the Royals are good at developing arms. 
uh, Tampa Bay has become good at developing arms, young arms. So I have a little more trust for that, uh, that or at least for those teams and their ability. But but to answer your question, I the, the month I, I I try to give guys through April. Um, the 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 hard thing or the thing you have to be mindful of is generally the best most at bats most innings you can pluck out of the free agent pool are the guy are the guys that you will get in April also so you have to be mindful to not totally sit on on a guy who's going to be a dog and be a little bit proactive but but you have to be a little patient too the first month it's just the the, the statistics now what was it the second day of the season I was in I was in first place in tout and labor and I told Brian Walton and, and, and Todd Zola can, can the season just stop today? I'm, I'm good, you know. I, I win everywhere. Let's go home. And But, but that's not reality. It's not going to happen. It reminds me of a story from Ball 4 when uh, the Seattle Pilots were getting uh, in against somebody really good, Baltimore at the time, or one of the really top teams. And uh, they had a team meeting, and somebody, somebody said, uh, I know what we should do. If we get a lead, let's call timeout. And everybody laughed, and then they did get a lead, and the guy called timeout. <laughs> and, and after the timeout was over, Baltimore crushed like nine home runs or whatever, and it was a, a whitewash again for the poor Seattle Pilots. But yeah, call timeout when you're winning. It's always uh, always fun. I actually tried it last year in uh, Tout Daily. Uh, if and when, uh, Lore, we decide that we do want to make a change, we do want to dip into the free agent pool to replace a poor player or an injured player, at this relatively early point, we don't have a lot of stats to go by. So, what are you looking at when you're looking in the free agent pool for replacements? Oh, I'm looking at you know, uh, potential uh, to play. Um, uh, well, a couple of things. Well, it does depend on the position that I've lost because some spots are leaner than others. Pitchers, outfielders, there tend to be more of those guys around. But I'm looking for uh, uh, I'm looking for a couple things. I'm looking for a guy who I think will play. I'm also looking for a guy who uh, ostensibly won't hurt me any. And to some extent, a platoon guy won't hurt me as much because he's not going to, you know, if, if Robbie, Robbie Grossman's a good example of a kind of free agent pool guy that I, I'd like to take out in a, in a deeper league. He'll play against right-handers. He, he, because he won't play against lefties, that, that vulnerability is gone, so at least I'll get the good numbers. And since there's more right-handed starters than left-handed, I know I'll probably get more at-bats than not out of, out of a guy like him. So I look at, at matchups like that. We were just talking Marlon Gonzalez, who's usually the kind of guy that's hanging out in the free agent pool. He plays a lot of positions. He has a little bit of pop. So And, and because he plays a lot of positions, he'll even though he doesn't own a spot, he'll get to play all over over the place and maybe start four or five days a week spelling other guys. So those are all good indicators to me that uh, of, of potential play. Um, for pitchers, if I can't, I, I would try not to get a starter if he's potentially vulnerable. Uh, A.J. Griffin kind of guys make me a little bit nervous as a, as a, as a, as a replacement for a Sonny Gray or somebody like that. So I tend more to go to set-up relief pitchers who they're – generally is an abundance of guys like that. Yeah, I like the point you made about the platoons. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield and I were just talking about Lonnie Chisenhall from that angle, and Chisenhall has been called up, of course, and we talked about how he probably will only play the right side of the platoon, and some owners might look at it and say, look at all those at-bats he's costing me. But you really have to be realistic, especially in a deep league, in an only league, because you're getting rid of a lot of bad at-bats so and only cashing in on the good ones. So in a lot of ways, those platoony type guys can be really valuable, again, especially in only formats. Yes. 
you have a Masters Ball column about some waiver wire fodder, and one of the names on that list is a bit of a blast from the past. I know you've liked this uh, Howie Kendrick a long time. Why should we be interested in Howie Kendrick in 2017? Um, he does deliver. <laughs> he's playing right now. He's playing every day. He's playing left field. Uh, he can play some infield. He's kind of a National League counterpart to Marwin Gonzalez, although a little longer in the tooth at this point. But he's off to a good start, and, and he's always kind of been dismissed. But over his career, and he's he's been playing now for ten years. Over his career, his 162 game average is 290, 1172. And he averages 13 steals, and he averages 36 doubles. He's 33, so I don't, you know, do I think he can do that? Well, I do think he could hit 290 and knock in 11, uh, hit 11 homers and knock in 72 runs. I don't know if he'll steal 13 bases anymore, but he does have a pretty good track record of uh, of just being a kind of solid guy, a kind of a quiet hitter who will just deliver and. For that reason, especially if you've got a hole, you know, if, if, if you, uh, again, earlier we were talking Byron Buxton. If I'm struggling with Byron Buxton and I'm in a mixed league, Howie's the kind of guy I'm happy to pick up and plug in and reserve Byron until he can start doing something. Another reason that just popped into my head about guys like Kendrick and guys like Marwin Gonzalez is we know that Major League uh, teams are shortening their offensive benches and lengthening their bullpens and to me, that, that gives you even more reason to want to have those versatile multi-position players on your roster because any time anybody needs to be replaced because there are so few guys left on the bench to put in there, it's probably going to be Marwin Gonzalez or Howie Kendrick because they have no other choice. That, that's exactly right. In fact, locally, the Athletics have, I believe, uh, 12 player positions on their roster. That means three extra guys and one of them is a catcher. So... What that tells me is I might not think Adam Rosales is a stud, but if I'm in a deeper league, that does mean Adam Rosales might be available in the middle infield if I've got Jason Kipnis and that, Jay, uh, and that Adam Rosales, Rosales is going to get some at-bats. And that, you know, you, that, that's what you need is, are, are at-bats uh, in, in lieu of, a, of an injured player. And, and, and especially, I mean, people could turn up their nose at Adam Rosales, but if you're in a deep league, if you're in an AL-only league with 12 teams, a guy like Rosales who actually does get 12 at-bats a week, that could be a godsend. That, that's a huge amount. Um, you know, I, I, I liken these games to, I, I like to analogize fantasy baseball uh, to poker in that poker has a deck of cards, fantasy baseball has a stat base. The kind of league you're playing in is kind of tantamount to the kind of poker you want to play. If you're in a 10-team mixed league, that's kind of like playing AC Ducey or, or Chicago or Dr. Pepper where there's a lot of wild cards. But if you're in an AL-only league, uh, to me, with 12 teams, that's kind of like playing five-card stud. And the reality is you could win a hand with a pair of threes in five-card stud. It's very difficult to do, but you could do it. And essentially, Adam Rosales becomes one of those threes that you hope you can you can draw to to be part of a winning hand. Seattle lost Drew Smiley just before the season started, and coincidentally, just after I drafted him in tout, his replacement is the Cuban exile Ariel Miranda. I know you like Ariel Miranda. Explain why. As a rule, if there's ever been a uh, a nationality that seems to be um, you know, player ready, ready, ready to play day one, uh, or, or uh, ready for the to play in the major leagues at a competitive level. It does seem to be the Cubans. Um, he had a, a pretty good 
so career in Cuba. He was 22 and 25. Uh, he had 278 strikeouts. So a pretty good control pitcher. And last year he was actually pretty good for the Mariners. Uh, he he was five and two, three eight eight. He pitched 58 innings, struck out 44. Uh, so he's not he's not a rookie pitcher by any means. I know he got knocked around his first start the other day, but he's another guy with pretty good experience. He's 28, so he's a little bit older, and he's been around the block. And to me, that makes a, a safer gamble than, than than somebody who's just being brought up and having his first start. Also, when I look at the Seattle situation, it's not like they can have one bad start from Ariel Miranda and throw him aside and say, well, let's get one of our other excellent uh, pitchers waiting in the wings because there really aren't right now. That is an excellent point. <laughs> A few third basemen hitting the injury skids of late. Uh, Josh Donaldson now joins uh, Adrian Beltre and, and some others. You're recommending Pittsburgh third baseman David Freeze. What's the appeal of David Freeze? Uh, well, he has had some very, very fine years. His big issue is staying healthy. Um, but uh, actually, since 2011, he's, he's always played more than 120 games, so he seems to get his at-bats. And he... Hits it's kind of like Howie Kendrick. He hits this quiet 275, 12 homer, 70 runs knocked in, and he's getting the starts in Pittsburgh. Again, the name of the game is getting at bats, and if he's starting, then he's going to get at bats. He's also a pretty good left-handed hitter, uh, so then he gets, as we discussed, he gets the platoon side of it, and that's that's not a bad thing either. So, but but the main thing is he's experienced. He generally he puts up good numbers over the over the long haul, and and he he, he shouldn't hurt you any. So those are those are those should be comforting things to uh, when trying to mitigate a free fall or a, a, an injury to a player out of nowhere. You want to look for something safe to try to replace the iffiness. And to me, he's about as safe as you can get. Laura, I know you've been an Oakland A's fan and you've been associated with the team in various capacities over the years. And I know you like starting pitcher Andrew Triggs, a right-hander who's got off to a terrific start, but I know you don't like Andrew Triggs just because he's an Oakland A. No, I, 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 you know, I, if I get any ribbing because, uh, or get called a homer because I like A's pit players, pitchers, and hitters, I think it's largely because Billy Bean and I, see players similarly or see production similarly we and, and i've talked with billy about this that we both like whip you know a pitcher i've said it a million times the, the objective of, of a pitcher is to keep guys off base which means a guy who delivers a good whip is good will be good at that um the objective of a hitter is to get on base and therefore guys who, who have good obp uh, are guys I tend to favor, uh, and, and, and the truth is, as we all know, you can't score runs, you can't get hits, you can't do things without getting on base if you're a hitter. So those are the things I follow. Uh, as for Triggs, he's had pretty good minor league numbers. Uh, the interesting thing about him is he was a reliever in the minors. So the fact that he shifted over to starting, uh, being a starting pitcher, is is a little bit different. Usually it goes the other way around. But Oakland's being pretty good. They're 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 giving him six innings and and maybe ninety pitches, ninety to hundred pitches, and then pulling him out so he doesn't uh, burn out his arm. But 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 again, he's had good numbers in the minors. He held uh, he held hitters to a, a two nineteen average, and and he's had those two really nice starts. He pitches in a in a pitcher's park. So uh, those those are things that tell me, even though he's young, I'm willing to gamble on that. 
Something else I like about Triggs is that very sort of off the radar because Oakland was not a solid team last year and not drawing a lot of attention. In August of last year, uh, Triggs had four starts uh, and three relief appearances and overall through to a 277 ERA and an only an 085 whip. And I'm with you. I like guys with that low whip. He was striking out plenty of guys, hardly walking anybody. 24 to 4, I think was his ratio in that period last year. So it sort of comes as a surprise when a guy gets off to a good start like Andrew Triggs has, but really when you look backwards, you can see that there were the seeds there, not just in the minors, but at the uh, tail end of last year, he really seemed to be putting things together. That's true, and and I, I, I like feeding off those numbers, and again, though, with the younger players, sometimes they can be uh, a, a red herring. Uh, and, you know, when, when we get to September and September call-ups, the, the lineups aren't always as strong as they are uh, in July. So there are, there are some things to consider. But in general, yeah, every, the thing about Triggs is everywhere he's pitched, he's done pretty well so far. And so that, 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 that gives us a, a pretty good uh, sort of basis to make a, uh, an educated guess that we, we think over the long haul he will continue to be more successful than not. Now, are you at all concerned? Uh, last year, his his uh, dominance rate was around eight strikeouts per nine innings, something of that nature. So far this year, he's thrown 12 innings. He only has four strikeouts, and he has four walks to go with it. And he's stranding a lot of runners, and he's not giving up as many hits as we might expect at just 22% or a 220 BABIP. Does, are these causes for concern, or do they raise any flags for you, or is it just pitcher luck? No, uh, it, not not yet. I think the sample's too small. But for sure, I always worry about pitchers who give up more hits than they pitch innings and pitchers who can't at least strike out twice as many guys as they walk. Uh, and certainly the number of walks he's given up is nothing to be concerned about. But generally, guys who give up more hits than, than they in innings pitched, even if, especially if their ERAs are low, uh, I, I always think of uh, God, well, now. I always think of the guy that now I can't think of his name as uh, Tanaka. On that, not, was it Tanaka when he first came up? There's there's a guy with the I think it was, uh, and and he would have an ERA in the. In, in the low threes for his first couple of seasons, but his whip is always about 1.35. And what that tells me is that guys are getting on, but they're not getting the big hit off of him. And some, at some point, that will change. He'll give up the big hit, and his numbers will fall apart. It could also be that maybe those kinds of pitchers have the knack of bearing down a little bit harder when the going gets tough. they got runners in scoring position, a guy at second and third with one out, and they just have a knack for being able to maybe throw a pitch they don't usually throw, those kind of things. I remember reading that years ago about the uh, ground ball, extreme ground ball pitcher Chen Ming Wong, that uh, he was a very low strikeout pitcher, except when there were runners in scoring position, at which point he became Clayton Kershaw. And the story was that he just chose not to get a lot of strikeouts because it's hard on your arm. He'd rather throw, you know, six pitches in an inning and get three groundouts rather than throwing, you know, 12 pitches in an inning to get two strikeouts, except when it mattered. Do you think there's anything to that? I think it's pretty hard to do on the fly. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 think, I think it's hard. One of the hardest things for players to do, especially, is um, adjusting, on, uh, adjusting like that because what brought them to the to the big leagues is generally the skill that they've always relied on and, and, and that muscle memory repetition of here's how I do it, here's what works. In fact, I think that is also, ironically, what gets players in trouble 
because as we all know, baseball is a game of adjustments. You appear and you have some form of dominance either as a pitcher or a hitter, and after a while, everybody knows, okay, this is how you throw. This is how you hit. Here's, how I, here's where your holes are. Uh, I, like, I like to use Tim Linscombe as, as a great example. Um, who, you know, Timmy had the, the, the killer slider that would come in and then just snap down, break hard the last second. And for his first three years, four years, everybody would bite. And once people learn not to take that first or not to go after that first pitch of the, one of those first two pitches where that slider looked so tempting and then it would it would snap off once they stopped doing that it forced him in the position of having to adjust back and he's never been able to do that he loses a little velocity people start going at his money pitch he has to do he has he or people in his position have to do something to get people to get hitters to to bite again. So that means you have to put the ball ostensibly where they can hit it, uh, tantalize, change speeds, move the ball around, and he just w- was never able to do that. And that adjustment essentially cost him his career. So, but I don't know how you how easy that is to do just on the fly. I'm standing on the mound going, well, I think I have to. I'm 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 going to I'm going to start to induce ground balls now if I can. That I I think that's hard to do. Well, unless it's what you mostly do, you know, and uh, if you if you're confident in your stuff and you I mean, I'm thinking also of Chris Sale whose uh, strikeout rate has been slowly declining, but it seems to be because he wants to get more ground balls and and pitch deeper into games. At least that's been some reports about him. I think if the pitcher is good enough, it's possible that he can adjust his approach depending on who, on who's up and what the uh, runners on base situation is. Greg Maddox had that reputation as well. You know, nobody thought him as a uh, high velocity pitcher, but in certain situations he could bring it up there at 95. He just chose not to most of the time because you don't throw your best stuff all the time when it's not necessary. That's exactly right. John Gray left the game early on Thursday against San Francisco, but he's not the only Rockies starter worth noting. And in fact, in your column about waiver wire fodder, you mentioned two Rockies pitchers. Uh, we talked about them briefly earlier, Kyle Freeland and Antonio Senzatella. What's your interest in these two young Rockies pitchers? Well, again, they're rookie pitchers. So, and they're the rock, they're rookie Rocky pitchers. So, it, it, they have to, you, we have to have the, uh, a little bit of a cautionary idea about that. And both of them have had two pretty good starts. And actually, I, I have Sensatella in the baseball HQ uh, rookie league that we picked at the, in the fall league. He ranked number 31 in my top 250, 250 uh, in 2016. So he had pretty good minor league numbers coming in and pretty good dominance as a as a strikeout pitcher. So I, I kind of had my eye on him. I'm I'm trying I I've I've always tried to think that there is no real Rocky factor, that that's all in our heads. And I I think that because ostensibly a good pitcher should be able to pitch anywhere and a good hitter should be able to hit anywhere. That said, obviously there's something to it, but I'd like to think that with John Gray and Freeland and, and Sensatella, maybe maybe Colorado's figured out another way to uh, put together some pitchers who are a little more strikeout dominant and and move in some kind of a different direction. But but I really, especially of the two, I really do like Sensatella a lot. He had pretty good minor league numbers. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Laura Michaels from MastersBall.com. And uh, Laura, you also write for USA Today, and you had an article recently looking at what you called early season sizzlers and fizzlers, uh, keeping on with this theme of how do we deal with early season performance. Why did you mark Yaziel Puig as a sizzler? Well, for the first week of the season, he was he was pretty good. <laughs> he had three homers and hit almost 300, and um, I, I, I think, I think it's been a while um, since he hit three homers over any extended period of time. So he just came out of the blocks hot. It's it's really difficult. We've sort of talked about this already. It's really difficult with such a small stat, uh, stat sample to really, really, really get a feel for how anybody's going to do. Again, that's why we kind of need to need the whole month to kind of let guys settle into their position. But, but at least Puig came out strong, and if we had any questions about whether he'd get traded or not, that strong start means he's going to get every day at bats. They're giving him a chance to, to, to lose it on his own. And why did you really think uh, James Shields' decent first start, which was just five and a third innings, qualifies him as a sizzler despite what we know have been two pretty horrible seasons? Um, two pretty horrible seasons. He's still got pretty good stuff. He's on a team that's rebuilding. So I think there's not going to be a whole lot of pressure on him, which often, is a, especially for an aging player, that, that means he could just pitch within himself. He has a pretty good, he's had pretty good career success. He's had good career success in the American League. And he was, you know, I, I mean, he, he was a, a, a free agent, a reserve pick in just about every league in the universe. So again, if you're looking to replace a guy who was injured, if you're looking to replace Drew Smiley, Shields is probably out there in the free agent pool, and and that's kind of a safe gamble to go, especially out he, he showed a good start to begin with. I mean, maybe only get two or three good starts through the month of April out of it if he's on, if you pluck him out of the reserve list. But now now's the time to do it, coming off of a good list or uh, uh, off of a good start, and and when things are just getting started, I, I think he'll have his his best numbers early on in the season, and and, and certainly he has a track record that 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 he can produce. I think you're right. I think James Shields could be a guy who very quietly has not exactly a Cy Young level season anymore, but he could certainly be a contributor, especially in an AL only kind of league. Uh, on the Fizzler side, you mentioned a couple of relatively heralded rookies coming into 2017. The first, Anru Benintendi. He went for teen dollars in our Tout American League draft, but he scuffled right around the Mendoza line since the season started. How much of the disappointment we feel do you attribute to the general overestimation and how much of it do you attribute to that flu bug that's flying through the Red Sox clubhouse? Well, I think more overestimation than, than flu bug. I mean, he's, he's obviously a talented guy. He obviously can hit, but I, I think, you know, again, I look back to the Gordon Beckhams of the world and uh, guys who come on, and or, uh, Gary Sanchez. I, I was not real hot on Gary Sanchez because his on-base numbers in the minor leagues were never as good as what he did during his sample last year. And uh, if, if the numbers were the other way around, if he had really strong on-base numbers in the minors and less power, I would feel better about him because that tells me he's got better strike zone uh, judgment than, than, than what he displayed in the majors. He just has to adjust to being in the big leagues. When it's the other way around, I'm not really sure how to look at it. And Benatendi has had good good numbers in the minor leagues, but he's he's also very young, and I think I think we just have to 
not everybody's Albert Pujols. Not everybody's Corey Seager. In, in fact, most guys aren't even Carlos Correa, who kind of like all of these guys came out of the blocks two years ago really well. Last year he had a, what, what by most standards would be considered a really decent second season, but because he had been rated so highly uh, as a as, as a top three, you know, second first second round pick by people, they were disappointed and they 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 lose faith in a guy like that because he doesn't he doesn't hit the thirty five homers and not get the hundred and thirty runs they think he's supposed to do because based on what he did over three hundred and fifty at bats. The other rookie that you mentioned uh, was uh, Dansby Swanson in Atlanta. He shot up to the big leagues relatively quickly, although there were a couple guys a little quicker. Uh, Alex Bregman comes to mind, who's also having a slow start now that I think about it. Uh, the rookie of the year front runner, you called him, but he's off to a slow start. Uh, again, why is Dansby Swanson a fizzler, and how long do you think he's going to fizzle? Um, he, he Actually, his minor league numbers, he's a guy kind of like Sanchez, where his on-base numbers uh, were, were also better last year. His contact numbers during his uh, his debut last year were better than what his minor league numbers look like. And I think he was again no book on the guy. They're just he's playing a little bit over his head. And again, I think we uh, in, in all the leagues I drafted, and Swanson was taken above Marcus Simeon. He was taken above Brandon Crawford. He was taken above and- uh, Elvis Andrus. And to me, that's just insane. <laughs> Those guys are all established veterans with with four or five years worth of solid play under their belt, and why you would gamble that a guy with 300 at-bats can outproduce a guy who's played uh, pretty much every day for the last five years, I, I, don't, I don't understand that. And, and I don't think, it's not like I think Swanson is going to be bad. I just think he's going through an adjustment period. There, it, there's a reason that there's a sophomore jinx, and that's because other teams, because the other teams know you, and it becomes your turn to adjust. That's what, that's what makes or breaks it for most players, as I see it. That combination of, can I adjust back to them? Because really, the game boils down to a battle of the strike zone. Number one, and number two, if I can do that, do I understand that I belong here? And finally, uh, Lore Adam Ottavino made your Fizzlers list, but it wasn't really because of anything he's done on the field. It had more to do with roster movement. Why is Ottavino on your Fizzlers list? Uh, because we all thought he was going to be a closer, and he's not. <laughs> and it doesn't look like he will be soon uh, with Greg Holland pitching as well as he has been. So, I mean, I, I really thought he was going to end up closing because closer has been such a revolving door for the Rockies over the years. I mean, you know, Curtis Lasconic and, and uh, uh, Jose Jimenez, and there's any number of guys who are one-year wonders closing for that team, and then the next year somebody else would take over. And it just seemed like, Ottavino was the next guy up. He might well be their next closer, but right now Greg Holland is the man. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Laura Michaels. And Laura, in addition to being a baseball guy, you're a musician and one of the biggest music fans I know. And I always try to tap into what you're listening to because usually I like it too. So what have you been listening to lately? Actually, our our friend uh, Kyle Elfrink at Sirius XM, who's uh, uh, also uh, kind of a music head. And it's fun because he's younger uh, he turned me on to a couple of bands I really like a lot. Uh, latest albums by Car Seat Headrest and also the Japan Droids. Um, and I've also been listening to another newer band called uh, MGMT, who, who are pretty interesting. And uh, Neutron Milk Hotel, I also kind of like a lot. They have a song called The King of Carrot Flowers that, that I, I really like a lot. When you were young, you were the king. 
from their 1998 album In the Aeroplane Over the Sea, that's Neutral Milk Hotel and The King of Carrot Flowers, Part 1 of a three-part song. Very interesting band, lyrically and musically. Check out the instrumentation on this album. Beyond the usual guitar, bass, and drums, the album also has eclectic instruments and sounds like bowed fuzz bass, tapes, shortwave radio, singing saw, bowed banjo, accordion, white noise, trumpet, trombone, sax, flugelhorn, euphonium, air organ, one-note piano, zanzithophone, and Irish pipes. Neutral Milk Hotel, the King of Carrot Flowers, another cool tune from Lore Michaels. Back to baseball now, and Lore, during the season, we ask our experts to talk about their studs and duds for the balance of the year. We have talked extensively in this edition of Baseball HQ Radio with you about uh, guys who have got off to weird starts, but let's focus on guys who might be delivering the goods, as you said about Howie Kendrick, for the balance of the year. Let's start with our studs in the American League. Who's a hitter you think you like more than most? Uh, Steven Souza Jr. Uh, he's off to a good start. He's got good DNA, and he's he's sort of one of those. I I kind of think of him as, as sort of a Mark Kotze kind of guy. He can run a little bit. He can hit a little bit. He's got some power. He's a good defender. He's got a little bit of an arm, and I I think I got him for like seven dollars in tout. He's 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 a he's a good player and kind of overlooked and, and I you know, he's gonna play every day and I, I think I think he's capable of one of those Kotze kinda two ninety, fifteen homer, seventy runs driven in, fifteen steal seasons. And I was watching Tampa play Toronto the other day, and during the broadcast, somebody mentioned he seems to be have have really improved his plate patience and control at the plate. He's striking out less. He's he's not making as many wild swings without contact as he has been in the past, which is something of a bugaboo for him. And if he straightens that out, boy, the sky's the limit. Yes, yes, he's a talented guy. I like him. In fact, I like a lot of the Tampa players. They have some good stuff going on in there. In the National League, who's a hitter you like as a possible stud for the balance of the year? Uh, Phillies, Odabel Herrera, who had really good minor league numbers. I think he, his, his on-base numbers were around in the 350s in the minors. Had a really nice debut last year and is off to a really good start this year. And again, is a, you know, I, th- I think he was going in most leagues where I did mock drafts in 10th, 12th round. But he's, he's a potential... 15 homer, 25 to 30 steel guy. He's pretty good. Over to the mound in the American League, who's a pitcher that might be a stud for the discerning fantasy owner for the balance of the year? I'm not sure about stud, because we've talked about some younger pitchers, but I think the guy I like who's overlooked or dismissed, despite the fact that I would never use him as, as an ace, is Jay Happ. Uh, Jay Happ was was being drafted around the 19th or 20th round. I think he goes for five or six dollars in most most AL only auctions, and he's actually had some pretty good years in a row. And it, it, it's sort of that that same thing. If, if what we're looking for in a guy is if he could give me 200, at least a guy like Happ, if he could give me 200 innings or 180 innings and strike out 150 guys and win 10, 12 games as a number four starter, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm, there's no way in, in most leagues I'm going to get a guy like that to win 19 games, to strike out 200 guys, pitch 200 innings, and have a 1.2 whip. It's hard to have a fourth starter that good. And, but uh, to fill that spot, a guy like Hap is fantastic, I think. I agree with you. I paid $8 for him at Tout, and uh, the last couple of years he's been 
just exactly what you said. He's not an ace caliber starter for sure, but he's had a very controllable whip around 117 last year, 125 the year before, something like that. He's a playable pitcher, and uh, I know Toronto's really scuffling with the bats, which is keeping the wins totals down, but so far this year already in just a, a couple of starts, he's got 17 strikeouts, which is 8.5 per start. If he keeps that up all year, I'll sure take it, uh, that's for sure. Uh, how about in the National League, a stud pitcher you like more than probably most people do? Um, Jared Eikhoff, uh, another Philly. I hadn't really thought about going double Phillies here. Eric Carabell will be thrilled. Um, but Jared Eikhoff, who's coming off of a really good year again, kind of under the radar, um, I think in the FSTA, Todd and I drafted him maybe 15th or 16th round, which is pretty low. And he, too, is off to a really good start. I think his ERA is under two for his first two starts. And uh, I, I, he's, he strikes out batters. I, he's, he's a pretty good guy, and I, I, I like him. <laughs> Lore Michael Studs, Stephen Souza Jr. in Tampa, Odabel Herrera and Philadelphia. His pitchers, Jay Happ of Toronto and Jared Eikhoff, also of the Phillies. Let's move over to the Duds. Now, Lore, these are players that probably you think a little less of than most. So let's start again in the American League. And who's a hitter who you think has the makings of a dud for the rest of the season? Well, uh, this is going to be construed as kicking a, a, somebody when he's down, but I, have, I was never on the Gary Sanchez bandwagon for this year. Uh, arguably because of the things I'd said before, that, that there's a book on him now, people will be gunning for him, 356-at-bat sample. As good as he looked last year, it's a hard game, and he has to adjust. Now, obviously, the injury takes a little bit of the luster off of the, the high pick that he'd become, but even with that, I, I, I kept saying, Gary Sanchez, if anybody who's sure Gary Sanchez is the next coming of Mickey Mantle should go check out Kevin Moss. Because, uh, and, and I'm not saying Sanchez is Kevin Moss. I think the point is it's, much, it's, it's a much harder game to play and to deliver continuously than we sometimes give player people credit for. They're human beings, and it's a hard game. And expecting Gary Sanchez to hit 30 homers is, his second year is unrealistic. And I think, without going into the actual numbers, I think it's just fairly unrealistic to look at what he did in that relatively short call-up last year, 200 at-bats or something, and say, well, I'll just prorate that to 600 at-bats, because clearly there was something going on there that was out of the ordinary, and, you know, sometimes players catch lightning in a bottle, but it's foolish to think you can power your house with the lightning for the rest of your life, that's for sure. Uh, in the National League, who's a hitter you think might have uh, be disappointing to fantasy owners for the balance of the year? Another guy who was uh, who was drafted high uh, by most, Trevor Story, and again I like Trevor. He he was actually uh, highlighted by me in my top 250 prospect list last year. I think he was 224, um, and he kind of came out of nowhere. Nobody expected him to be as good as he was, as quickly as he was. But again, this year. People have a book on him. The sophomore jinx is here. He, he was young and had success at a very early age. It's not unreasonable to expect a correction. So this doesn't mean he's going to have a horrible career any more than Gary Sanchez will have a horrible career. However, second year making it good, people, people paying second round, third round price for a guy with, with just one year under his belt, that's a big gamble. And, and it could pay off, but more times than not, it doesn't. Over to the pitchers in the American League. Who's a pitcher you think is likelier to disappoint than he is to delight? You uh, Darvish, who everybody says is the ace, who is in a contract year, 
and he's pitched very, very well. But his injury history, combo of injury history, and just sometimes that team is erratic and he's not in the best pitcher's park. I, I just, I, maybe one of these days he's going to put it all together, but I don't see it this year. Add to the injury risk, how about the bullpen risk? Uh, Texas, I talked earlier with Ryan Bloomfield about the Texas bullpen, and boy, it's uh, not in great shape. They've got uh, Jeremy Jeffress, who's a low strikeout pitcher. They've got uh, Keone Kayla, who's uh, something of a head case, can't stay in the major leagues. Matt Bush is possibly hurt, and uh, Sam Dyson, just ineffective. Yeah, Sam Dyson, un- unlike the vacuum cleaner that sucks up everything in its wake, he's uh, not not doing it. No, he just sucks, period. Uh, yes, Exactly, exactly. Whatever I, I think doesn't the Dyson vacuum work on some kind of ball principle, and whatever their ball is doing is a lot better than what his is. And finally, in the National League, who's a pitcher you think is uh, likelier to disappoint than to be uh, delightful? It's it's kind of a cross, but I'm a little nervous about the John Lester John Lackey duo. Um, not that they're not good pitchers. Uh, I again, the, they they make me nervous because of age and. And at some point, they're going to get tired and, and, and be vulnerable. And everybody's gunning for the Cubs. Uh, I, I always am nervous about the fact that John Lester doesn't, like, doesn't know how to throw to first base anyway. And I think teams are going to exploit that. And, and again, those are good guys. Uh, they're guys I wouldn't mind having on my team, but I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't deliver ace numbers. That they're, I, I, I think uh, 14 wins out of Lester and a, and a, and a mid-to-high three ERA and a whip at 1.26 will be plenty good. Uh, I would not expect much more than that out of him. Before I let you go, Alor, before we wrap this up, something you said during your uh, comment on you, Darvish, uh, opened something up in my mind, and it's this. The idea that players can perform better because of contract year um, expectations. People think that because it's a contract year, the player's going to try harder or pitch better or something like that. I just don't believe it's true, and I'm curious what you think of the whole it's a contract year, he'll, he'll be better. Our subconsciouses are very strong, and I think whether anybody likes it or not, deep down, he, whether he likes it or not, he's still thinking, I need, I'm, I, I'm shopping for a contract next year. I'm not only trying to win this year, but I'm selling myself for next year, somebody I want somebody to buy my the rights to my services next year, and I'm going to really focus harder and make sure that I come up with something because I need a job. <laughs> and I think I, I do think that 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 plays in subliminally to all of us. And it doesn't matter who you are or what 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 discipline you're performing in. If you know the eyes are on you because you're going to get your contract renewed or you're going to get a raise, we tend to do a little better job, or at least we tend to buckle down a little bit more. Yeah, I wonder. I I wonder if any research has been done on the topic because it just seems counterintuitive to me. A, a professional athlete usually tries his hardest all the time because he's just worried about getting cut, you know, in the moment. So he's got some incentives to not uh, slack off uh, and save his best for last kind of thing. Uh, Laura, it's always interesting to talk with you, uh, as you said, walking the streets of New York or sitting around the uh, dinner table at Tout Wars in New York. Uh, out at First Pitch Arizona. It's always a delight, and I'm very glad you could take the time again. Uh, tell us where listeners can read more from Laura Michaels. You can always find me at Masters Ball. On Monday, I, I do the hot page. Uh, I do D, DFS coverage uh, three or four times a week, uh, including writing about the PGA. I write Bed Goes Up, Bed Goes Down on on Saturdays and on Wednesdays. Uh, we're going to start following the Tout Daily yearly because we're doing football too so we're going to rehash fout wars and 
look at how the touts are performing in the in daily stuff. Uh, every Monday, I'm at uh, the USA Today with my Sizzle Fizzle article, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Lar Michaels. That's simple enough. And the last one is uh, um, rumor has it that uh, a week from next Thursday, we'll be debuting a, a, a new radio show on the Fantasy Network called the Tout Wars Hour, and I'll be hosting that with uh, my friend Justin Mason from uh, Friends with Fantasy Benefits. And that will be an hour-long show. In fact, I'm hoping you're, you know, we, I, can, I can turn the tables on you and that you can be my guest. And uh, I, can, I get to ask you questions and probe the depths of your mind uh, when we're not walking the streets of New York. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know how much probing you'll have to do. Probably a little spoon would be enough. But uh, anytime you want, Laura, you know you can call me and I'd be glad to join you. I'm hearing you. I'm seeing one of those little spoons when you want a sample of the gelato, those little plastic ones. But we'll be out at 6 o'clock uh, or 9 o'clock Eastern every Thursday night, at least starting starting in two weeks for one week uh, until we get canceled. But I'm looking at having a pretty fun show there, all the touts. Uh, I have We have quite a few people we can draw on within the industry that are the best-known writers and, and players, just like you have access to. And we can see what, it, what they're thinking when they're formulating their strategies and uh, it should be a, it should be a pretty fun hour. All right, Laura. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Laura Michaels writes for MastersBall.com and USA Today. He's going to be on the Fantasy Sports Network with a new radio show, so look for that. He'll uh, let you know he's a terrific Twitter follow. So Laura Michaels, L A W R, and uh, tr- follow him on Twitter. It's uh, lots of fun besides baseball. Uh, next up, our baseball HU commentaries are coming up. The minor league minute, our playing time segment, frequent flyers, pitcher matchups, and master notes. A lot of stuff still to come on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Rob Gordon, minor league analyst for BaseballHQ.com, and I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about the 2017 edition of the Minor League Baseball Analyst, our annual guide to the prospects and trends that will help you win your fantasy leagues. The Minor League Baseball Analyst has scouted more than a thousand prospects using Baseball HQ's exclusive player potential rating systems, sabermetric analysis, performance trends, and major league equivalencies from the past five seasons, and there's lots more as well. Order your minor league baseball analyst today for just $19.95 plus shipping and handling. And if you order directly from baseballhq.com slash MLBA17 and enter the promo code MINERS at checkout, you get $5 off your order. Plus, you also get a PDF copy of the book. And if that isn't enough, you get online updates for all 30 organizational lists and our top 50 fantasy prospects. Today's winning fantasy baseball players get on top and stay on top by knowing which prospects are the wannabes, the maybes, and the gonnabes. Go to the top. Go to BaseballHQ.com slash MLBA17 and order your minor league baseball analyst today. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have our playing time, frequent flyers, pitcher matchups report, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Yankees right-handed pitching prospect Albert Abreu is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Now that the 2017 Minor League season is underway, it's time to turn our attention to potential breakout prospects. First up is the New York Yankees' Albert Abreu. The 21-year-old Abreu was a bit of a late bloomer and signed as an international free agent in 2013 by the Houston Astros. Abreu was later traded to the Yankees as part of the Brian McCann deal. Abreu has seen his fastball velocity jump from the upper 80s in his pro debut to the mid-90s last year. It's now a plus offering, sitting at 93-96, to topping out at 99 miles an hour. 
He backs up the heater with an above average slider, a curveball, and a fringy changeup. Abreu has struggled with control at times and last year walked 58 in 101.2 innings pitched, but also struck out more than a batter per nine and limited opposing hitters to a 202 batting average against. Abreu has gotten off to a very impressive start in 2017. After two starts, he's 1-0 with a 0.93 ERA, with just one walk and 17 strikeouts in nine and two-thirds innings for high A Charleston. Granted, this is a very small sample size, but Albert Abreu has plus stuff and is definitely worth keeping an eye on in AL-only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes call-ups like... White Sox catcher Kevin Smith, Kansas City right-hander Jake Junis, Braves right-hander Jason Hirsch, and more call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at the closer carousels in Oakland and Arizona. And here to tell you more, once again, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. With just over a week in the books, the closer carousel is already circling at a pretty rapid rate with a couple changes that we'll cover here this week. First, we'll go to Oakland, where Ryan Madsen's stay as Oakland's closer didn't last long to the surprise of almost nobody. We covered the A's situation in both playing time today and tomorrow this week, where it looks like manager Bob Melvin will deploy a pitching platoon for now, a Santiago Casilla getting matchups against righties and the southpaw Sean Doolittle facing lefties. The current plan gives Casilla the slight advantage. His amazing run of six straight sub-3 ERAs came to an end last season when he posted a 357 mark with the Giants, but Casilla's long outpitched his peripherals and he's seen a nice boost in his strikeout rate with double-digit K per nine the last two seasons combined at 36 years old. Perhaps Casilla's biggest strength though is his durability. He's thrown over 50 relief innings every season since 2010. On the other end of that health spectrum is Doolittle, who's barely hit 50 innings the last two seasons combined thanks to shoulder injuries. Doolittle, who's 30, is a beast when healthy with his elite strikeout and walk ratios when he's on the mound. And his early velocity readings in 2017 are in line with previous levels, which is a good sign. But we know that shoulder injuries rarely just go away. So while Casilla and Doolittle will split time in Oakland's pen, the safer play right now is probably Casilla, mostly due to his reliability against Doolittle's injury risk, and Casilla's got the matchup platoon advantage in facing righties over Doolittle in the short term, despite Doolittle's higher upside. And for a closer change that could easily happen coming up shortly, we'll go to the desert where the Diamondbacks are off to an impressive start. Their closer, who's bow and arrow shooting Fernando Rodney, has been shaky at best, though, uh, despite nabbing three saves in the team's first 10 games. Rodney's 40 years old, and he suffered down the stretch with a 439 expected ERA in the second half last year, which is mostly because of a terrible 6.2 walks per nine innings. Rodney's given up three runs with a 4-3 to strikeout to walk ratio in his first four games this season and he's certainly not a good bet to stick all year as Arizona's closer. So Brian Slack looked at potential alternatives to Rodney looking ahead in his NL West playing time tomorrow column and came up with Archie Bradley. 
Bradley's failed to live up to the massive prospect hype he has as a, as a starter in the minors, so the new D-backs front office switched Bradley to the bullpen after he lost out on the fifth starter gig. The results have been fantastic. Bradley's seen a big uptick in velocity from 92-93 up to 96 with the fastball this year, and he's got an early 8-1 to strikeout to walk rate so far. It's obviously early, and Bradley doesn't yet warrant a pickup in shallow or even mid-sized formats right now, but keep an eye on Rodney in the D-backs pen. If his lack- lackluster skills show through, and they probably will, look for Archie Bradley to get a shot as the potential D-backs closer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Yankees outfielder Aaron Hicks and Detroit relief pitcher Joe Jimenez. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Who is the only Yankee to make at least 20 starts at all three outfield positions since Joe DiMaggio in 1936? Give up? It's Aaron Hicks, the first of two frequent flyers that we'll profile this week. Often overlooked on draft day, 27-year-old Yankees outfielder Aaron Hicks batted only 217 with eight home runs and three steals in 2016, his first season in the Bronx. A switch hitter who batted only 161 against lefties in 2016, Aaron Hicks seemed destined to be a reserve or platoon player at best on fantasy teams in 2017, and he still could be. Yet something feels different. Baseball HQ's Matt Dodge's March 30th Playing Time Today column pointed to Aaron Hicks showing signs of a new improved plate approach. Indeed, a new leg kick added last July seems to have increased his power potential. Of course, Aaron Hicks's current contact rate of 92% points to regression in 2017. That's why Aaron Hicks, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered log shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Still, it took Aaron Hicks until May 6th to homer last season, but he already has two in 2017. Maybe it's a fluke, or maybe it's an indication of good things to come. Another indication of good things to come may be the Major League debut of 22-year-old Detroit Tigers reliever Joe Jimenez, who pitched a 1-2-3 inning as Major League debut on Thursday, April 13, 2017, before being optioned back to AAA. You may remember my good friends Patrick Davitt and Rob Gordon discussing Joe Jimenez's skills on the March 21st edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Plus, PD described Joe Jimenez as a high strikeout alternative with an outside shot at closing as March 29th AL Tout Wars article on BaseballHQ.com. In addition, Rob Gordon said that Joe Jimenez might have the clearest path to saves of any prospect on his list of the top relief pitching prospects for 2017 on BaseballHQ.com. While it's still very early, Detroit's bullpen has a whopping 583 ERA. Consider this, after only allowing 12 earned runs in total in 2016, Bruce Rondon has already allowed 6 earned runs in 2017, leading to his demotion back to AAA. Not to mention that 35-year-old closer Francisco Rodriguez already has a blown save. In other words, although it's still very early, Detroit's aging bullpen seems to be imploding. 
But, as Hall of Famer Bob Lemon once said, the two most important things in life are good friends and a strong bullpen. Remember this when you consider adding both Aaron Hicks and Joe Jimenez, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong starts, while ratings of minus one or worse are strong bets to sit it out. Between the ones are in the wild card range. They're toss-ups you'll have to consider based on your own risk appetite. With a look at some weekend matchups, including starts by Jake Arietta, Bartolo Colon, and other pitchers, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. This weekend, only one starting pitcher gets the green light of a BaseballHQ.com matchup rating in the recommended range of one or above, and it's only 103 at that. Our marquee matchup is on Saturday, but our marquee man will not be wearing his customary Cubs jersey with number 49 on the back. Instead, like every other player in the majors, Jake Arrieta will be wearing number 42 in honor of Jackie Robinson, whose first game as number 42 for the Brooklyn Dodgers was April 15, 1947, 70 years ago this Saturday. The right-handed Arietta is at home as the Chicagoans go up against the visiting Pittsburgh Pirates. The Bucks send out their highly touted young right-hander Tyler Glass now, who has a stay-away matchup rating of minus 143. Remember, our April matchup ratings rely on performance metrics and team statistics from 2016. The 2016 World Series champion Cubs were the best team in the majors, winning 103 regular season games. That was 25 games more than the Pirates, who won only 78. The Cubs allowed fewer runs than any other team and scored more than all but two clubs, posting the largest positive run differential in Major League Baseball. They also had the best record against right-handers, the best record versus teams under 500, and the best home record. In fact, their home record of 57-24 and 24 was the best in the 141-year history of the franchise. The Pirates allowed more runs than they scored, were under 500 on the road, ranked 18th versus teams at or above 500, and 24th against right-handers. Arietta started six games against Pittsburgh in 2016, averaging six and a third innings by logging 38 frames. He had three PQS dominant outings, two PQS decent ones, and one PQS disaster. Arietta handled the Bucks very well with an expected ERA of 3.32, a whip of 1.15, and a dominance rate of 9.4 strikeouts per nine innings against them. In 16 home starts, Arietta held all opposing batters to a batting average of 185, gave up only six home runs, and struck out 115 in 99 and two-thirds innings pitched, posting an ERA of 2.62. Jake Arietta is this weekend's marquee matchup on Saturday. It may be a bit difficult to find your favorite players, even with a scorecard, as everyone wears number 42 for Jackie Robinson Day Saturday. But finding our Sunday surprise matchup this weekend will be the easiest Easter egg hunt of all. The soon-to-be 44-year-old, 5-foot-11-inch, 280-pound Bartolo Colon is entering his 20th Major League season and has already surprised us by winning 80 games over the past six years since returning from an arm injury at age 38. Cologne is at his new home in Atlanta to go up against the San Diego Padres and Jared Cosart, who has a woeful matchup rating of minus 164. 
The Braves themselves surprised us in the second half of 2016 by ranking third in team batting average and sixth in runs scored, winning two more games than they lost. The Padres had the worst road record in the majors and ranked 28th both against right-handers and versus teams under 500. The lack of depth on their roster this year is reflected by their carrying three players obtained in the Rule 5 draft. Cologne scored a PQS 4 in his lone start against San Diego last season, and though he's in a new venue now, he was certainly comfortable at home last year. In his 16 home starts, Cologne walked only 16 and struck out 81 in 95 innings. He had a whip of 114 and an ERA of 313. Atlanta's Bartolo Cologne is this weekend's Sunday surprise. Now let's conclude with some quick highlights and lowlights from our pitcher matchup ratings for the rest of the weekend. In the American League, only three other starting pitchers have attractive matchup ratings, and they're all scheduled to take the hill on Saturday. They are Chris Sale, Corey Kluber, and James Paxton. The rest of the American League slate this weekend features flashing red stoplights on Saturday for Lance McCullers, Dylan G, and Jake Odorizzi, and on Sunday for Dylan Bundy, James Shields, Charlie Morton, Hector Santiago, and Alex Cobb. In the National League, there are two go-to guys on Saturday in Matt Moore and recent factor fluke subject Tanner Roark, plus one more guy to try on Sunday, Gio Gonzalez. On the opposite side of the ledger, National League all-avoids on Saturday include Jacob deGrom, Jeremy Hellickson, and Clayton Richard. Finally, senior circuit stayaways for Sunday include Willie Peralta, Matt Harvey, Jared Eikhoff, and Adam Wainwright. We hope you'll use our Pitcher Matchups tool to make all of your weekends more enjoyable this season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his weekend Pitcher Matchups report here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to stick with our theme on the show and talk about whether it's time to start panicking about Byron Buxton. So, what do you do if you own Byron Buxton? One of the great things about BaseballHQ.com is mantras. We have more mantras than your average Shaolin temple. And in fact, repeating those mantras in a low, slow monotone is an excellent way to watch a ball game. Although the guy sitting next to you at the bar might scooch a few seats farther down. One of the best HQ mantras is buy skills, not roles. A variation is draft skills, not stats. Another mantra is once a player displays a skill, he owns it. A quick site search reveals some other lesser-known mantras, such as trade current picks for good cards if you're a contender, and never start a land war in Asia, though I might have messed up the search terms on that one. But one of the best and most useful HQ mantras, especially at this time of the year, is exercise excruciating patience. This one really matters if your first week has included performance by, say, Francisco Liriano and Edwin Encarnacion. Liriano's first start lasted a third of an inning, with five earned runs. That's an ERA of 135.00, although the decimals here seem superfluous. And he gave up seven base runners, which is a whip of 21.00, and again, ditto on the significant figures. Encarnacion, meanwhile, mashed his way to a 185 batting average, a 63% contact rate, 10 strikeouts in 27 at-bats if you're keeping score at home, one lousy home run and one RBI, and a 600 OPS. He also grounded into not one but two bases-loaded double plays. 
The reason I bring this up is I happen to have both Liriano and Encarnacion on my Tout Wars team, and I will be exercising excruciating patience, even though I feel like the Dustin Hoffman character in Marathon Man, and Liriano and Encarnacion are taking turns playing the Alec Guinness role as the demented Nazi dentist. I believe I have good reason to exercise patience with these players. They've earned it with their track records. Over the last four seasons, Liriano has a 361 ERA, a dominance rate of nearly 10 strikeouts per nine innings, and a command rate of 2.4 strikeouts per walk. Over that same time, Edwin has averaged a 270 batting average, 85% contact, 110 RBIs, 90 runs scored, 38 home runs, and a 905 OPS. So yeah, I'm hanging on. But if I had Byron Buxton, I'm not so sure. So how bad has it been? Really, quite bad. Coming into this season, Buxton was the subject of the sort of speculative analysis usually reserved for something important, like the economy or a Kardashian. A lot of analysts looked longingly at the tremendous run Buxton had last September, when he had a 10-11 OPS, 9 home runs, and 22 RBIs. He's finally figured out major league pitching, all the analysts said. Although I should note that the baseball forecaster noted Buxton's strong September before saying he had an elevated hit rate and then cautioning, contact is still a struggle. Expected power index doesn't buy power. Be careful, the path to stardom may yet have some detours. Well, cue the screeching tires and collision sound effects, because calling Buxton's 2017 season so far a detour is like calling the Hindenburg an oopsie. Through the Twins' first seven games, Buxton had 30 plate appearances, two hits and one walk, for an 069 batting average and a 100 OBP. And that's not the worst of it. Buxton also had 17 strikeouts in those 30 plate appearances. That's a 57% strikeout rate. Just for the sake of reference, only one player since 2007 has had more than 100 plate appearances in a season and a strikeout rate over 45%. Try to guess who it is. I'll tell you at the end of this Master Notes. While a lot of people were excited for Buxton's potential breakout, even the most optimistic must have been concerned about Buxton's propensity to swing a lot and miss a lot. So what's possibly even more concerning is that Buxton has started this season swinging more than ever and missing more than ever. Over the previous two seasons, Buxton swung about 46% of the pitches he saw and came up empty about 30% of those swings. This year, he's hacking at 58% of pitches and creating nothing but wind on 42% of those. Not only that, but he's whaling away at more pitches outside the strike zone and making way less contact when he does. He's also swinging more at pitches in the zone, which is good, but missing more often as well, which is not good. As a result of this mass whiffery, Buxton is racking up strikeouts at a record pace. He struck out at least once in each of those first seven games. He had three games with three strikeouts apiece and one golden sombrero. Four times up, four strikeouts. If he got 650 plate appearances at this rate, he'd finish the year with more than 350, which would make Mark Reynolds and Adam Dunn look like Barry Bonds. To look over this stats sure looks like a batter who has been figured out, at least in the early going. Pitchers are throwing way more pitches into the strike zone because they seem confident Buxton will figure out some way to get himself out. Of course, baseball is a game of adjustments and it's entirely possible Buxton could still figure this out. 
but how long can you afford to wait to find out? There are two reasons that suggest at least considering pulling the pin. First, the math is somewhat against Buxton as a full-season proposition, at least as far as the decimals are concerned. Buxton's 2-for-29 start means an owner who came in hoping for a 250 batting average in 550 at-bats would now need Buxton to hit 260 the rest of the way just to get to that modest target. As well, there's the problem of replacing Buxton or any underperforming player this early in the season. In only leagues especially, the free agent hitter pool is very thin, and owners might just have to cross their fingers and let Buxton or any other underperforming player stay on their roster. In shallower formats, though, there still might be some usable replacements. But remember, every week that goes by, every transaction period, thins the pool, and at the same time gives the replacement guy fewer weeks to offset the damage being done. Now, none of this means you should just dump Byron Buxton. It's a small sample, and there is a chance Buxton's immense natural talents will allow him to rebound and still put up some quality numbers. And of course, if your rules let you bench or reserve a guy, that's an obvious step for now while you wait and watch. But don't watch for too long, and don't wait too long either. HQ Research has shown that the time to expect a true breakout from a young player is the season after he reaches 800 big league plate appearances. Assuming Buxton keeps playing, he'll reach the 800 plate appearance threshold sometime later this season. So you know the mantra, wait till next year? That might be the cautious play this time around. By the way, the only player since 2007 with more than 100 plate appearances and a strikeout rate over 45%, still playing and still swinging, Joey Gallo, who fanned in 46 of his plate appearances, 57 strikeouts in 123 plate appearances for Texas back in 2015. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 14 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, the Zen master himself, Lore Michaels, from Masters Ball and USA Today. Lore's great fun to talk with about baseball and music and pretty much everything else, and he's a great guest here on Baseball HQ Radio. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ryan Bloomfield, who is also our Playing Time commentator. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. 
It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you next Friday. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.